I got kicked out of a casino today. I'm sitting down at the Baccarat table, playing, minding my own business, and I happen to look up for a second and I see somebody filming me with their cell phone. He did not ask me if he could do that, does not have my permission, so I immediately told the pit boss, listen, that motherfucker is filming me right now. And because I was so pissed and I was in the moment, I said, if you don't fucking get security and stop him, I'm going to fucking kill him. Those were the exact words that I said. Literally within 60 seconds, five security guards showed up, said, Mr. Mitchell, come here. We need to talk to you. Told him what the problem was. And they ended up kicking me out because I, quote, unquote, threatened to kill somebody. Now, did I really mean I was going to physically kill him? No, but <laughs> they said I threatened somebody, so they kicked me out of the casino. That was Christopher Mitchell. He unfortunately found himself on the wrong end of a casino dispute, and he was thrown out. Of course, this is his own story, and some people are thinking maybe this didn't really happen, but I actually believe it. Once in a while, the guy actually tells the truth, or most of the truth, and I do think he was probably losing his ass in the casino, and someone was recording him, whether it was someone who recognized him as a scammer or just someone who was watching him throw a tantrum, as he often does when he's losing, and just thought it was amusing to record him. And then he flipped out and th said he's going to kill the guy, and then the casino ejected him. I think it probably happened along those lines. So I am curious as to which casino it was, but always a pleasure to watch videos like that. Anyway, welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio, part two of the show that took place on January 4th and 5th. The intro I just played you actually was after the show concluded. This was posted on the 9th of January, but since we're still editing the show, and part two is what you're listening to right now, part one was posted a few days ago, and... I figured I might as well throw this in here as a little intro, since the show hasn't been posted yet, at least part two hasn't. So, the remainder of the topics that we didn't cover are all in this part, and just go back to part one to hear the ACR and GG poker scandals, two big stories that happened at the end of 2023 and beginning of 2024, and you have about three and a half hours of content here to listen to more, and then we will do another show soon. Enjoy. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Phil Galfond and hiring Justin Bonomo as a coach. Because this brought some controversy. And this one, unlike the ACR and the GG thing, those poker site controversies I just discussed, the community was pretty much of a single mind on these things. You didn't have a lot of dissent within the community regarding how ACR and GG behaved. But this one had a lot of different opinions. Phil Galfond runs the Run It Once training site. And this is different than his Run It Once poker site that went down and, by the way, might be going up again sometime soon, but we'll get to that a little bit later. But we're talking about the Run It Once poker training site, which has been successful and has been around for a long time. Jeff, do you remember, just to, before you get into this, do you remember a little bit of history? Do you remember Phil Galfond, the first site where his training videos appeared on? I do not. Blue Fire Poker. I was actually an early subscriber on Blue Fire Poker. Really? Phil okay. Galfond, I think it was uh, started <laughs> and run by someone else, but it primarily featured Phil Galfond and a few other uh, pros that did videos up there. 
And uh, I think there was some kind of falling out that they had, or Phil thought he could make more money doing it on his own. And clearly he was right, but that was the first uh, training site that he was ever involved with. Interesting. I didn't pay actually, that much attention. It was actually really good back in the day. Yeah, I didn't pay that much attention to training sites. I probably heard of it at the time, but I didn't really think about it. I did as I was trying to get into uh, PLO. It was uh, he had a whole lot of really good PLO content up there. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, it, I, I've heard the content's good. I haven't ever watched any of it myself, but I, I've, I've heard good things about it. So the run at once. I've, I've done very little with run at once, but yeah, I've heard as well that it is quite good. Yeah. So I have no criticism here of, of the content on run at once. It's got a good reputation. However, it got into some controversy recently, and not because of the content, but about who they hired. Now, let's go back a little bit, though, to June 2023. Phil Galthon posted a bizarre defense of Justin Bonomo's 2006 multi-account cheating. Now, there's no question this happened, and Bonomo himself admitted it happened. So it's not like he's saying, oh, Bonomo didn't really do this. He didn't say that Bonomo never said this. It has been acknowledged that Justin Bonomo was entering freeze-out tournaments under multiple accounts at the same time. And that is cheating, no matter which way you look at it. However, most people reading Phil Galfond's Twitter today, or even back in June of 2023, were either not around in online poker in 2006, or just didn't remember enough about it and the norms at the time to be able to counter what he was saying. So, strangely enough, Galfond seemed to be rewriting history on the whole situation with Bonomo, which was a weird thing for him to do because this had nothing to do with Galfond. Really, it had absolutely nothing to do with Galfond. It's not like Galfond is trying to defend himself in any way. It really had nothing to do with him. But this is what he tweeted back in June, and then we'll link it to what's going on today. Galfond said, I see this question a lot. What Justin Bonomo did approximately 17 years ago is nothing like what Jake and Ali did. That is Jake Schindler and Ali Imsrevic and their multi-accounting and real-time assistance using to win online. This is true even if he'd done it in 2023, but when accounting for the landscape, it's like your grandpa being sexist in the 60s versus you committing sexual assault today. I know this is kind of an odd and ironic metaphor because Justin wouldn't have been sexist in the 60s, but I couldn't think of a better one. I've hesitated to comment because nobody likes people who, quote, stand up for cheaters because I don't particularly feel like launching into research in a long thought out post and because it wasn't a good thing that he did. It's not good that your grandpa was sexist. But I've seen this so many times and those who weren't around poker back then and or don't know the details misunderstand what happened. Now, I got this far and I go, wait a minute. Now, he might be right that a lot of people weren't around back then or misunderstood what happened, but... I did not misunderstand it. I was around back then. I had been around in online poker for five years, five plus years by that point. I understood it very well. And I wasn't a young guy either. I was 34 years old. So I definitely had a very clear picture of what happened. And I knew the morals of the time as well. But let's go on. He wrote, My point isn't to defend Justin, who can handle himself, but to help us focus on the real bad actors who are fleecing the games and in a way that lets the world know that these people aren't everywhere. So many comments come from people who think that Jake and Ali are two of a thousand like them. They are not. For those that just see the word cheater when they see Justin's name and don't know anything beyond that, here's my recollection. 
My view is that young Justin and others thought they found a way to multi-enter tournaments before multi-entry existed so that they could play more volume. There were not as many tournaments running online as today, so some high-stakes MTTs saw it as a mo- opportunity to get more volume at $100 and $200 buy-in tournaments. There was no intent to card share or collude with his other accounts in the large field tournaments, and in fact, Justin actively tried to make sure he couldn't do this. I don't, I don't want to... <laughs> what? How, how do you make it so you can't do this. You get placed at tables beyond your control. You you can't decide where you sit. So if Justin gets sat with himself, of course he's colluding with himself. Like that's that's a strange thing for him to write. This wasn't cash games where he was using two accounts and just would never sit at the same table with each other. This is a tournament. You can't control it. Anyway, going on. Again, not saying this was good, but his intent was to get more volume in without gaining an unfair advantage. Yes, being able to multi-enter when others can't is an advantage, but you know what? As I write this, I still know it won't land with many because they weren't around back then when online poker was new. Let me stop right here. I don't know how he thinks he knows what Justin was thinking. This may be what Justin told him at the time, but uh, I actually, I don't know if that's the time. It's probably like more recently what Justin told him, but he doesn't know what was in Justin's head. But to me, this looked like someone who just felt like this gave him an edge. Number one, he could play a different style knowing he has a second bullet going at the whole thing. And number two, if he did get placed at the same table with himself, that would be a tremendous advantage. So I think Justin was just trying to make the most money possible and damn what was ethical. So Galfon went on to write, let me just say there were a lot of things that we understand today that we didn't in the early 2000s and the community discussion and consensus didn't happen at the same rate it does now. The point is Justin didn't believe he was doing something bad at the time That isn't all that counts, but it still counts, and it's why I didn't believe he would do something like that again when he was finally welcomed back into the poker world. Even though Ali is relatively young, like Justin was, he knew what he was doing was extremely wrong. He knew that by colluding with up to half of the accounts at the same table, he gained an unfair advantage and an unbeatable edge. This is tantamount to theft, which is obvious even back in 2006. If you want to judge Justin for what he did back then, that's your right, but I'm tired of seeing Justin's acceptance back into poker used in the same sentence as people who aren't anywhere close to as deserving of it. Okay, now, I agree he's not as bad even back in 06 as Jake and Ali have been recently. That's true. But no one's been saying that. No one's been saying that he's just as bad as Jake and Ali as far as cheating goes. Even though I have been very critical of Justin Bonomo and his antics on Twitter, and I don't like him personally, I've said before that I don't believe that he's cheated since that incident back in 06. So that's good that he has played for over 17 years and proven that he has not cheated since, that he's reformed and he was young when it happened. So I've said all that before. Now, it's still true he cheated in 06. But I I feel like Galfond is whitewashing this too much or was whitewashing this back in June. But let me finish off here what he wrote. I respect Justin, but I didn't know him back in 06. We've essentially never spent time together away from the poker table and we don't communicate outside of Twitter. To be honest, I hang out with very few poker players away from the tables. When you see poker players that have been around a long time and are deeply integrated in the community speak up about specific instances of cheating and not others, it's not because we're all friends with each other. It's because we understand who the serious offenders are, the ones who will likely cheat again and need to be eradicated from the poker world. For my limited info, none of the other players on GG Poker, even those who were banned, were at the level of Jake and Ali who are truly robbing the games. So what bothered me about this statement was that this was kind of rewriting history that at the time multi-accounting wasn't seen as cheating. 
which it was. It's just not true what Galfon was saying. A lot of the other stuff that this isn't as bad as Jake and Ali and all that, that that's all true, but... I'll say, though, Druff, that it was... Pretty much everyone was doing it. Well, there were, there were cheaters back then, sure, but I'm saying that when Justin Bonimo was caught, it wasn't like, oh, okay, well, no big deal, everyone's doing it. Like, a lot of people right. were, were outraged by this. There were a lot of talk online about how bad this was. Now, I'll tell you about what was very rampant at the time and not considered cheating, and that was cash multi-accounting provided you did not sit at the same table as yourself. So if you wanted to have four different accounts on a poker site and only play cash with them or only use one to enter tournaments, and if you never sat with yourself, then no one questioned it, nor did they question if you shared account with your friends. That changed over time. But in 2006, that type of multi-accounting was considered okay. And in fact, some sites like the CryptoLogic Network even allowed it. So I wrote back to Galfon back in June. I was around in those days. Justin 100% knew he was cheating and didn't care. It was not a product of the times or anything like that. Cash game account sharing was common in 2006. However, using two accounts in the same tournaments, which he did, was 100% seen as cheating. So then Galfon responded to me and said, By who, though? There wasn't a single community in the same way there is now. You're saying account sharing in cash games was not considered cheating amongst people you knew, but this was, right? Might the people Justin was exposed to felt differently? See, that's just not true. This Bonomo thing was a big story at the time. Now, it wasn't on Twitter, because I don't think there was Twitter then, or if it was, if it's in, in its uh, infancy. But it was all over the forums. 2 plus 2 was much bigger in those days than it is presently. And even on the Never Win Poker forums, this is being discussed, and everybody had a single opinion that this was cheating and people were pretty outraged by it. Whereas if you were to post, hey, such and such person is sharing an account with his friends in cash games, sometimes it's one guy, sometimes it's another, everyone would yawn and say, yeah, so what? <laughs> That's what everyone's doing. So the, it's a huge difference. It's not just who I was exposed to. I, I could see all over the forums that one thing was seen as just okay and everybody did it and it wasn't a big deal if you didn't sit at a table with yourself. And with the tournament thing, it was seen as a huge sin, even back then. And there's a good reason for that, right? Yeah. If you're playing multiple cash tables and you're not at the same table with yourself, I mean, arguably there are some implications with, uh, you know, squatting and all that kind of stuff. But it's not the same as having equity and being able to share hands in a tournament, you know? Yeah. It's it's not the same. And you can control where you sit in cash games. So you can make it sure 100% of the time you don't sit with yourself. And there definitely are advantages you can get from this that people don't know your play style and you know their style. Or if you take an account that belongs to a fish and then they expect a fish and then you, you can crush them when you play a lot better. There's a lot of ways you can exploit this unethically and it was done and that's why eventually there was a backlash against this and it became considered wrong. And I'm not objecting to that. I'm just saying that at the time that was not considered a form of cheating or anything unethical. But the tournament thing was because the very obvious situation of Number one, what if you end up at a table with yourself? And number two, you're violating the whole concept of what a freeze-out is. So anyway, Galfon responded back to me and said, I was on 2 plus 2. My memory's hazy, but I recall people criticizing him after he was banned. Well, yeah, that's true. They were. 
Before he was banned, I don't recall any discussion on 2 plus 2 about multi-accounting and where the ethical line was, but I could have forgotten or missed it in subforums I didn't read. And then someone responded back, you seriously think that the topic never came up because you don't remember it? The whole blind defense of Justin and fabricating multiple facts to suit your narrative is bizarre and makes you look extremely biased. Now, the part of that that I remember, Druff, and it may, my memory may be a little bit hazy, <clears throat> but it also seemed to me that at the time, even though you're you're right that everyone or you know people were eventually saying that the, this is cheating and shouldn't be done and all that kind of stuff, it also seemed like a whole lot of people were sort of holding their breath because I think there were a whole lot of people that were doing it. <laughs> Do you remember that at all? I don't remember a ton of people doing it or if they did it. It's a criticism being somewhat slow to come in or people that you normally thought on two plus two that would be all over something like this didn't really say anything. I know, I saw it happen pretty quickly and then this was the Did second okay. this was the second instance of this. Now the first was not with Justin. The first was with this guy who's not around anymore. I think he played under like a name like a black car. It was like a 16-year-old I think actually. And oh, he was using two accounts. So that was the first big instance and then Justin's was the second and they were fairly close together, but there was already pre- plenty of outrage about the first one. Okay, I, yeah, like I said, I might not have remembered it uh, correctly, but I, it seemed, I do seem to recall that there were a number of people behind the scenes that were kind of like, oh, I guess I'm glad I didn't get caught and I should stop doing that. Oh, you yeah, I'm sure I mean? there were some like that, yeah. But yeah. Justin knew that he was cheating here. He knew he was doing something he wasn't supposed to. He knew that there was the issue with possibly ending up at the table with himself, and he just didn't care. He thought, I want to make money. And I've never liked how he's gone back and tried to change history. I mean, he's posted the same thing before, too, when addressing this, just changing history. Oh, this is the way everyone was playing at the time. This wasn't a big deal back then. Or once he even posted a ridiculous defense that when he would end up at the same table with himself what he would do to counteract that to make it more fair to everybody is he would start opening cash tables in the background so he'd be more distracted. <laughs> right. I, no chance that happened. Like, you, you think Bonomo, who did this in the first place to make more money, he ends up at the same table with himself. He's like, oh, better make sure I'm distracted so I don't see my own two hands. Like, how can you even do that? Like, you've, you've got two accounts at the same table. Of course you know both hands. You have to. Like, it's just... It, it's crazy that he even tried to defend it. He all he has to say. Yeah, that's that's bullshit. <laughs> all he has to say is, "I was very young back then. All I was thinking was making yeah. money. I've since matured and realized how wrong it was. And as soon as there was a backlash to it, and I realized I'd made a big mistake, I vowed I would be very honest in my poker play going forward. You can see, for the past seventeen years, I've never been." involved in any kind of cheating scandals and i've been very careful to be honest ever since then and that that, that would end it like that's all he has to say not 100 agree man yeah not not to 100 agree that's what he should say it's almost like a statute of limitations you know at some point someone has uh served their uh their uh, their sentence to society or whatever you know i realize that people are still going to give him shit every you know random people will come out and give him shit but i think most people if he says something like that, they should just be like, yeah, you know what? I did a lot of dumb shit when I was younger, too, you know, and just move on with it. Yeah. You know? and, and by the way, the reason people give him shit about this isn't because they just can't forget it and want to keep hassling him 17 years later. 
it's because a lot of his tweets are in a very sanctimonious fashion, or he seems to be looking down on everybody for not being as moral as he is. And so this gets yep. people pissed off, and they go, wait a minute, you're the guy who's so pure in, in all your intentions you claim. What about this cheating you did back in 06? Oh, well, you know, that actually wasn't wrong at the time, and you know, when I ended up at the same table with myself, I would, I'd make sure to distract myself, and it just makes him look like more of a douche. So that's, that's what gets so people ridiculous. pissed off. That's, that's what gets people mad. And yeah. so, so it's, just own it. Yeah, own it, own right. it and, and also you, you've got to factor that in when you're going to be posturing on Twitter about what a great guy you are. You, you've, you've got to factor that in, even if it's 17 years ago, that people are going to remember this. So th- that's the reason he yeah, got something those. Something about glass houses and stones or yes. something like that? Right? <laughs> so, yeah. so, okay, let's get back to the present here. So that was back in June. I did wonder back in June why Galfond picked this to tweet about. Why did he care so much about this? Why was this something he brings up out of nowhere? Well, I think we have our answer. On December 22nd, Run It Once is the Run It Once training site, quietly announced the addition of several new pros to their roster. And when I say quietly, it was announced on at Run It Once on Twitter, which is Run It Once training. And it doesn't get a ton of people following or interacting with it because it's kind of a boring account. It's just an account for the Run It Once training company. So it tweeted, Today is one of the biggest days in Run It Once history. It's the first day for our all-new Elite program. We'll be sharing more details soon, but for now, welcome to Run It Once. And they now have five new members. In addition to Jason Kuhn, who's returning... They have Dan Smith, Jeremy Osmus, Ryan Lang, Kevin Martin, and Justin Bonimo. And then there's a picture of all six of them, and it says, learn from the best. So it's some sort of training program where you're learning from people who mostly play at pretty high stakes. Does Bonimo have that, <clears throat> that blue hair in that picture? Actually, he doesn't. It, what's funny is his hair is it's, it's a normal color, but it's very receding. So it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of a weird picture. It's not the best picture of him, but whatever. That's the picture they're using. Yeah, you can't really get away with the blue hair anymore if your hairline's receding. You start to look like a weird circus clown. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then it was noticed and people started giving... Galfond a hard time, so he realized he had to address this, which I, I have to imagine he thought was going to happen. That's probably why they quietly announced it on the Run at Once training page, hoping it would just kind of slip by, but it didn't, so Galfond had to address it. So th- this is where we get to the present, and I have to think that Galfond already wanted to hire Bonomo back in June, or at least was considering it then, and discussed it with Bonomo and was already trying to clean up his image a little bit with that June tweet. That's my guess. That's why he probably did it, because at the time I was baffled as to why Galfon would just throw that out there. Anyway, this is what he tweeted on December 23rd, a day after the announcement, which then got a bad reaction. It seems that people are demanding an explanation as to why Run It Once's big recent pro-signing announcement includes Justin Bonomo. Now, before I continue here, just to remind everybody, we've talked about it on recent shows, Justin Bonomo has been very, very outspoken about the October 7th attacks on Israel by Hamas, and he has been very, very, very on Hamas's side. 
He's been super anti-Israel, and he's been repeating a lot of the propaganda that Hamas has been putting out, and he's been very, very, very hesitant to criticize Hamas. In fact, made some pretty outrageous statements, like the worst of which that he's only seen credible evidence of one rape, which is amazing coming from the guy who always says, believe all women. And then he also put at one point that he can't think of any other option that would have been better for Hamas to do to get attention to the plight of the situation in Gaza. And if you have a suggestion, let him know. So, he, I mean, talk about justifying that. He said, he, he said I haven't seen any, any better idea than going over the fence and murdering 1,400 Jews. You know, tell me something better. To me, that's the best idea so far. So he said these things. He wrote these right on his Twitter. Not out of context. This is what he wrote directly. So people got very outraged by this, including some liberals who, even for them, this was too much. So Bonomo's reputation has really taken a beating in the last three months, ever since the October 7th attacks. So Bonomo was going to be hired to run it once, and then this happened, as you'll hear from this statement that Galfon made, and then they had to reconsider whether they want to go through with it. So this is what he wrote. A few months ago, after a lot of planning and hard work, we were celebrating the most exciting series of coach signings in the history of Run It Once. I couldn't wait for our members to see who we were bringing them to make videos. As we were planning the relaunch of our elite program, war broke out in the Middle East, and one of our biggest new signings became extremely unpopular in the poker community as a result of his views on the conflict. We had more internal discussions on Justin than I care to admit. It became a big part of meetings on the relaunch. We knew that some would react poorly to us signing him and that some might even boycott our business. We also knew it would distract from the otherwise very exciting news. In the end, we agreed on a few things. We are a poker training company. It's not our job, nor are we qualified to decide whose political views are right. It is our job to hire the best poker players in the world to teach our members. We don't want to terminate people's contracts over political beliefs. I'll say exactly one thing about Justin's views. I firmly believe that he does not hate or advocate hate towards any any race or religion, and that this should be obvious to anyone who's followed him. Beyond that, I'm not planning to comment on Justin's views. They aren't my own, they're his. We employ over 60 poker pros. I don't endorse all their opinions. What I do endorse, however, is that they're excellent at training our members how to win at the poker tables. If you dislike one of these pros enough to take your business elsewhere, I respect that. I wholeheartedly support your right to vote with your wallet. I also support your right to voice your disapproval. I just want to clarify that I'm not ignoring your individual comments. This is my answer. I'm extremely proud of my team's efforts to give members the access to the brightest minds in the game. We've just brought three of the top five players on poker's all-time money list, four out of five if you count old videos. No one else has one in the top ten. There's a reason for that. It's not easy. If you know me at all, you know that I don't want my decisions to upset anyone. I'm sad that this one has. And our decision to keep Justin in the face of the poker community turning against him may or may not hurt our business. But I believe that our members want us to give them the best product we possibly can, and I believe our staff and coaches deserve not to be censored or fired over their political views. At the end of the day, my responsibilities as a business owner are to them, and I believe we did what's right. So Galfon is very good at writing statements which can quell controversy and where he comes off as reasonable and likable, and this is definitely one of them. This, this is a good statement, even if you don't agree with what his decision was, which was to keep Bonomo and announce him as a new coach rather than to just drop the whole thing. The statement itself was good, unlike ACR with their 
terrible PR statements, uh, Galfon put out a very good statement. However, the question is whether Galfon should have kept Bonimo or if he should have dropped them. Well, believe it or not, as much as I am against Bonimo's views on October 7th, as much as I just don't like him as a person and as ridiculous as I think he is, I actually don't disagree with Phil's decision. I'm not a fan of cancellation. I think that Bonomo's views on the Hamas situation are vile, but I don't think they should disqualify him from being able to coach poker. I understand not wanting to hire him for that reason. I understand people not wanting to buy anything he puts out. I even understand not wanting to buy anything Run at One puts out if they hire him. But I don't feel that Galifon should be pressured not to hire him. Otherwise, the same can be done for other people whose views are deemed by some to be inappropriate, even my own. Now, I'm not about to be hired to run it once, but if I did have an opportunity or seek an opportunity to do some kind of coaching videos for one of these poker training sites, it would suck if people were to make allegations about me or not like my politics and demand that I don't get to make videos there because that really shouldn't have to do with it. So this becomes a very slippery slope. This is something that I can't support, that if someone has controversial views about politics, that they should be unhirable to any company that's unrelated to it. Because otherwise, you're going to get to the point where anyone who's ever said anything controversial will not be hired. So I don't think he should be canceled from any poker-related opportunities. I don't agree doing this to anyone unless they directly have hurt poker, such as cheaters or scammers. Now you can say that uh, you could say that Bonimo was a cheater back in '06, but it's been 17 years. He hasn't been involved in any known cheating since then. So even though it's a lot more major than Galfon is trying to claim back in June, it still has been 17 years. However, I will say this: I don't know how Galfon would have treated it if this were the same situation but from the right-wing perspective. So would Galfon be willing to hire a poker coach who would have something good to teach and does have good results but had very strong and controversial and offensive right-wing views? I don't know. He may not. Galfon doesn't really post about politics, but I've heard that he is on the left, so it's probably easier for him to swallow what Bonomo tweets about. Well, be specific, Drev. What kind of right-wing view would you consider to be equal but opposite to Bonomo? I don't even know, but let's say some guy's putting out there that the January 6th riots were justified and that uh, that... Mike Pence was a traitor and that uh, the government should have been overthrown and that uh, Trump should have been made president again. It's something like that. I, I don't know. I'm just throwing that off the top of my head. But I'm saying just someone with very offensive views that's on the right that pisses a lot when, of people when you, off. When you own a business, what it really boils down to is sort of what Galfon was saying is, you know, how is this going to hurt us as a brand? Are, are we going to be tarnished by this? Are, are people going to unsubscribe or, or not be willing to subscribe or you, you know what I mean? And you have to kind of look at it from that perspective. Well, I fully I understand that. Know, yeah. 
I don't even know how much it matters what his political beliefs are or not. Uh, at least if he's thinking clearly about it, because really what matters is it does. It doesn't even have to be something that you care about. It's just something about how it's going to impact your business. Well, yeah, for sure. I but it seems like this also had an aspect to like what he felt was right. Just that he was trying to say that he just doesn't like the idea of not hiring someone because their politics are unpopular, which I agree with, by the way. But it, it has to yeah. go both ways then. Well, it doesn't have to. He can do what he wants with his own business. But I, I feel right. for so that. Now you're speculating that he wouldn't do it if it was some other view? No, I'm not. I'm saying just I hope that he would. I hope that he would still yeah. hire someone yeah. who's on the other side. I don't know what he would do. There's no way to know unless that were to come up. I'm just saying that I, I hope that's the case. I don't have an answer for that, whether he would or wouldn't. But I'm saying that I agree with him provided... I agree with his statement, basically, and his actions with keeping Justin Bonomo on as a coach and going forward with the hiring, provided that he would have done this for someone on the other side who was offending people. Then I... I, I sort of agree with them. Um, I, I agree with him in principle. The, the evaluation or the calculus on my end, again, would be, you know, what is the, what is the blowback or impact going to be on my business? And I would not hire someone regardless of whether it was extreme right or left or center or backwards or forwards or whatever, if I thought it was going to have a negative impact on my business, I wouldn't do it. Yeah, and I understand that too. And that's the right of every business owner to do. You can't uh, always stand for principle when running a business because well, you sometimes can. you, you – Well, yeah, you, I'm right? saying if you I want mean, to be successful – you has to decide yeah. where they want to be uh, in that equation. Uh, and you can say, you know what? I don't care. You know, they, this principle means enough to me that uh, I'm willing to take a hit on my business to do it. I'm just saying that I, I personally um, am not, <laughs> you know. Well, I guess the way to put it is that you can, but if your business's success is what's most important to you, then sometimes right. you have to put principles aside. And I understand why you and others could take that view, and I, I might also take that view as well, depending on the situation. It depends, man. It depends on how extreme it is, right? You know what I mean? And, and you're right. To some extent, it does depend on what the, the issue or topic is, right? So if I'm, I'm big on free speech and letting people say whatever they want. So if it was an issue related to that, then I would be more inclined to, to look past it, assuming it wouldn't be detrimental to the business in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I know other people that, uh, you know, that uh, that wouldn't take the same view. Yeah, and I try to be consistent with these things just from the moral standpoint. I, While it can be tempting to want to see people canceled who are taking these views regarding Hamas, you know, as a, as a Jew and as someone who's also on the opposite political side to them, it can be very tempting to support these people's cancellation. But then I have to think, whoa, 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 I can't support that because then I will be supporting the whole concept of canceling people based upon their controversial political speech. Right. And I've said this for a long time that this is wrong when the left does it to people on the right, which I've seen for a long time. And so now we're starting to see it on the other side. And yeah. uh, so like, I, I can't support any of it. So I, I Right. There, there was a recent one that actually this reminds me of is the, uh, the firing of the, uh, the dean of Harvard, right? Her last name was Gay, I think it was. Well, yeah, that she, one that was more of a different story because she had 
plagiarized a whole bunch. So once that came out, it was pretty much... Well, sort of, right? But people went after her originally because of her, her views on this very same subject where she wasn't willing to make what you know, seemed to me to be a perfectly reasonable statement to make um, uh, about, you know, whether... I think it, the specific statement was, you know, do you agree that condoning genocide of the Jewish people is hate it's something to that effect and she just would not give an answer yeah and, and um, I saw those whole videos that, yeah people went after her and then started digging up some of this plagiarizing stuff and this that and the other thing but uh, she that you're right that was definitely a, a cancellation coming from the right so it's weird that uh, well it, it was but, but I'll say this yeah. is that it was a cancellation but it was for a good reason in that it was about hypocrisy because if she had stood for free speech at Harvard and then this came up and then people on the right like nope we don't like this type of free speech she needs to be fired then I'd be the first one to say she shouldn't be fired even as a Jew but it was the fact that Harvard actually had the bottom ranking from uh, some kind of organization that was evaluating free speech on campus Harvard actually had the very bottom ranking for free speech allowed, like just the slightest thing that could be deemed offensive, you'd get in trouble for over there. And then all of a sudden when it's about genocide against Jews, then it was like, oh, no, no, we've got to let them have their free speech. That, that was the big problem there is that she it was picking and choosing when they were going to enforce offensive speech codes. Right, I'm not even talking about her firing. Like I view that as a, a separate issue. Um, but I mean in terms of the way people were coming after her and trying to cancel her. Like it was very reminiscent of... Uh, the kind of cancellations you would see people on the left doing, uh, you know, for, you know, stupid reasons like pronouns or something like that, you know? Yeah. And, and, I, and, and I digging s- into her past and trying to find any anything that she'd done wrong and seeing, you know what I mean? I don't know. Yeah, I can see that. But just I, I, I'm a big believer in consistency. And I, I've always felt that if you want to live by censorship, you need to die by censorship. So you can't wave the free speech banner when you've been punishing people for a long time for speaking their minds, for expressing viewpoints you don't agree with. And then when it comes to an offensive viewpoint you do agree with, then you want to wave the free speech banner at that point. Like Musk. Like Musk is a poster boy for this because he's like, I'm going to buy Twitter and make it a free speech, everything. And then he bans people's accounts that say stuff about him he doesn't like. Like, okay, buddy, it's not really about free speech, is it? (laughs) So anyway, getting back to this, Justin Bonomo then put out a statement. And it's very clear to me this statement was because of the hiring because it came the day after Galfon's statement and Galfon probably went to him and said, okay, Justin, your turn. Now time for you to put out something to calm people down. So Bonomo put out a statement on December 24th. He says, my stance is on the Israel-Palestine conflict. TLDR, meaning a summary. Hamas is terrible. Anti-Semitism is horrific, widespread, and terrifying. The ethnic cleansing and endless bombing occurring in Gaza are absolutely unjustifiable atrocities. The Palestinian people have been subjugated for 75 years. They deserve peace, opportunity, and the right to self-determination. I wish I could say that I didn't care what other people think, but it hurts deeply seeing some of the disgusting things people are claiming I've said or believe. Anyone who knows anything about me understands that I don't hold back. I speak my mind even when I know it will come back to hurt me. I have to be honest. I said 
I, I have to authentically be myself, which is why it's so perplexing that people are reading so much into what they think I might mean or they think I might haven't said. I have one request for you. Please judge me for what I actually say, not for what you've heard others speculate I believe or don't believe. Here's what I actually believe. Now, now let me stop right here. This is all bullshit because he said things very directly, which I'm going to read you shortly, but there's no possible way to take it in a different context or to twist it around. These were very, very clear and direct statements. So for him to claim that people are twisting his words or putting words in his mouth is bullshit. So, But I'll, I'll get to that shortly. Let me read the rest of the statement. Hamas is obviously terrible. I've been very consistent about the fact that I want Hamas gone. They haven't allowed an election since 2006. Their leaders have ranged from anti-Semitic to outright genocidal. There is corruption, greed, hypocrisy, and bloodlust. Their horrendous actions have been detrimental and dangerous not only for the Israeli people, but also for the Palestinian people. I want them gone. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The actions of Hamas on the Nova Festival, that was the music festival of a lot of young people who were murdered there, on October 7th, were an unthinkable atrocity. Murdering and kidnapping civilians is a war crime, and I absolutely do not condone it. There were also rapes and other grotesque instances of sexual violence. I hope every perpetrator of those crimes gets what's coming to them. There's nothing that can ever justify rape or sexual violence. Regarding the rapes, there's something that I've been criticized for that I want to address. Much earlier on in the the conflict, in what I thought would be buried deep in the replies of a smaller conversation, I told someone that I hadn't personally seen more than one account of rape. I never expected, perhaps foolishly, that this comment would be taken out of context and broadcasted to a million people by Doug Polk. See, it's it's Doug Polk's fault, guys. This was at a time when multiple major media outlets, including the LA Times, had deleted reports of rape after there was doubt among specific claims made by the Israeli police. Since then, more evidence has come out, and it seems very likely that many rapes did occur. I want to be very clear that I've never refuted the account of any women. Since the conversation in question, UN workers, first responders, and others have come forward with their stories, and I absolutely believe them. If anyone has to doubt any accounts of rape in Israel or anywhere else because of anything I've said, I sincerely apologize. I will continue to do my best of being fact-based, intellectually honest, and sincere, and I apologize for any mistakes I've made or will make in the future. The key point is I've been desperately trying to convey is this. None of what the IDF, that is the Israeli Defense Force, was claiming, which includes both lies and truths, could possibly justify any of the numerous ongoing war crimes Israel has been committing. I just want peace for all, and I don't believe there's a single route to peace that doesn't involve giving the Palestinian people a safe home and the basic human right of self-determination. These are my stances. If you see someone claiming I believe anything counter to the above, I'd appreciate you sending them here. In my next post, I will outline in great detail why I believe Israel is not acting primarily in self-defense, as well as outlining with sources many of the war crimes they've committed. Now, I'm not going to read this whole long-ass thing about Israel, but I'm going to read a a few lines here. You can go look at the whole statement if you want. I'm not trying to cover anything up. I just don't want to read this whole long uh, diatribe of his, because it's not important for what I'm going to say. I need to read that whole (laughs) First and foremost, let me be clear that I believe everyone on the planet has a right to defend themselves. However, I believe Israel has gone egregiously far beyond self-defense. And then blah, 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 blah. And at the end he says, I call for a unilateral ceasefire now. My message is always one of peace, never hate. Hashtag free Palestine. Okay, so 
Let me tell you why he is full of shit. Rather than apologize for his statements, I guess he threw one apology in there, but it was qualified by a bunch of crap. He's attempting to justify the statements and blaming people like Doug Polk for taking him out of context. So basically, he's not saying, yeah, I said some really awful stuff. I've thought about it since then. I shouldn't have said this stuff. Even at the time, it was wrong. I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. It wasn't that. It was like, no, what I've been saying is always right. Doug Polk and others have been twisting it. And if I offended you or if you misunderstood my message, I'm sorry. That's not an apology. So he just needs to own it, and he's not owning it. So in the bullshit statement I read you, he said, I'll say it before and I'll say it again. The actions of Hamas at the Nova Festival on October 7th were an unthinkable atrocity. Murdering and kidnapping civilians is a war crime, and I absolutely do not condone it. Okay, now that would be good if he really believed that, but that's not what he believes. It's a complete lie. Here's what he wrote on November 8th. Not October 8th, November 8th. That's important because he's already had a month to think about this whole thing by this point. He's had a month to read reports about all the rapes that occurred. He's had a month to digest everything and to learn about this conflict of which he spent a lot of time reading about and tweeting about because he's constantly writing about it. So this is not someone who just was tweeting from a position of ignorance. He's spent a lot of time researching this. So November 8th, over a month after it happened, he tweeted, and still up, to this day I have not heard a suggestion of what Hamas should have done instead that would have given them any chance of receiving basic human rights for the 2.2 million people in Gaza. Until I hear that suggestion, I will not use my platform to condemn their resistance. Resistance! He's calling what happened on October 7th resistance, and he won't condemn it. He won't use his platform to condemn it until someone gives him a suggestion of what they could have done to get basic human rights for their people other than killing 1,400 Jewish civilians. And then he writes in the same tweet, Aside, I haven't seen any credible evidence that there is more than one instance of rape from Hamas. This is over a month later. So there's nothing out of context there. It's very, very clear what he meant. Like, what else could this have possibly meant? He stated very clearly that he hasn't yet seen a better suggestion regarding what Hamas should have done instead of murder civilians. He was very clear that he won't use his platform to condemn what he calls their resistance, not intentional murders of civilians and the rape and kidnapping of many more, but just they're resisting. And then the rapes, he said he hasn't seen any credible evidence that there was more than one. This is over a month after it happened. So he's blaming Doug Polk for taking him out of context. you got to be freaking kidding me. There is no out of context here. He was very clear. So either Onya said this and apologized for it and say you were totally out of line and this was something that you felt at the time but you've since realized wasn't right, not because you've learned more since then, but just because you, you, know, you were just being very insensitive and you were not thinking of the Jewish point of view, whatever. But... Don't deny you said it. Don't blame Doug Polk for taking you out of context. You were not taken out of context. This is what you said, Justin. You may not like that people jumped on this. And he even wrote in there that he didn't expect this was going to be made a big deal of. He thought this was buried in a long line of replies that nobody was reading. That's the truth there. He, he thought he could unmask himself and say what he really felt and that this wouldn't be coming back to bite him because nobody would see it because it was buried in a lot of arguing back and forth. That is what I believe. 
Not that he was taken out of context. If you think I'm wrong, tell me what he could have possibly meant there. He was very, very clear. And as far as Doug Polk taking him out of context of the rapes, when he wrote, regarding the rapes, there's something I've been criticized for that I want to address. Much earlier in the conflict, in what I thought would be buried deep in the replies of a smaller conversation. There you go. I told someone that I had personally only seen one account of rape. I never expected, perhaps foolishly, that this comment would be taken out of context and broadcasted to a million people by Doug Polk. This is at a time multiple major media outlets, including the LA Times, had deleted reports of rape after there was a doubt about specific claims made by the Israeli police. Since then, more evidence has come out. It seems very likely that many rapes did occur. Okay. Nothing out of context. Justin, who says he believes all women, refused to believe the first-hand account of rape of many Israeli women and many other witnesses and claimed there was only credible evidence of one rape. Just one. Incredibly disgusting and callous to say, especially from a supposed feminist. Also, it's not like the rapes were in doubt. Only the extreme Hamas apologists were attempting to make the claim that the Jews were making up rape stories. Anyone with the slightest bit of sense knew the rapes were real, and in fact they were real, and that Hamas was bragging about them after the fact. So no one reasonable ever thought these rapes were fake, except Justin. Also, how can you say there's only one rape? So you know, let's, let's not worry about Hamas too much. They only rape one woman. One rape's okay. Like, yeah, how, how can you even know? <laughs> how many rapes are okay to Justin, though? Is there a certain number where you can rape a certain number of women and you're okay, but past that you're bad? Like, it's just a bizarre statement. It's just such a callous statement. But, you know, Druff, to me, the this whole situation is just sort of, you know... Social media gives you the ability to express your thoughts on controversial issues and uh, do that at your peril. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because it, it may come back to haunt you. Yes. Speaking of coming back to haunt you, you might think, okay, well, that was November 8th, maybe closer to when he tweeted this long statement, of which I only read you part of, but the one from December 24th, the day after Galfon's whole explanation as to why they hired Justin, that maybe somehow in between November 8th and December 24th that Justin moderated and realized that his initial views were wrong, especially about the rapes. Maybe Justin read something shortly after November 8th that convinced him that the rapes were real. So maybe he felt that way for a long time and just didn't really express it on Twitter. Well... I don't think so. Why? Because on December 21st, three days before the tweet that was trying to smooth things over because he was just hired as a coach, I'm not going to read you the whole tweet, but here is right from the middle of it. As for the rapes, I'm dubious that any of the claims are true, and I'm pissed at Israel for ordering that they not be investigated. If they did occur, I hope every rapist rots in prison. So... Let's focus on the first statement. As for the rapes, I'm dubious that any of the claims are true. There you go. <laughs> any of the claims. Not, not I'm dubious that the rapes occurred at the level that Israel's claiming. I think there was a lot of rape, but not as much as they are making it out to be. He's dubious that any of the claims are true. And he's blaming it on Israel for supposedly not investigating it. So... His position there on December 21st was basically that he doubts all the rape claims and that if there really were rapes, it's Israel's fault for not investigating it enough. This is December 21st. And then all of a sudden, three days later, he's completely changed his tune after 
Galfond announces him as a coach and probably asks him to make nice with people. So the bottom line is this whole statement was bullshit and probably done at Galfond's request to try to quell the controversy here. But, hey, his previous tweets, of which there are many, tell a very different story, especially when it's three days beforehand. Now, I still don't have a different opinion from what I just said before, that I still think it's okay to hire him. I would not want to give Bonomo any money, even if I felt that he had a good course, that I could learn some things from him, and I probably could. I, you know, Probably if I watched him teach how to play No Limit Hold'em tournaments, I bet I could learn some things. But I would not want to give him money because I don't like him, and I don't want to give the guy money, just as I don't think he'd want to give me money for anything, even if he thought I had something to offer him, and that'd be fine. And therein is the danger, right, of expressing yourself on controversial stuff in public because people will people will disagree with you and then it can affect you from a financial point of view. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah, that's an ongoing problem with social media and in, in so many different ways. It can even come back to bite you 15 years later. So I, I'm against any kind of cancellation. I, I, I'm not one of them that you'll see asking Galfond to reconsider or telling him he made a mistake hiring Bonomo, nothing like that. This is, maybe it's a mistake from a business standpoint, but I don't care about that. That's Galfond's business if he wants to take the risk or not. But as far as from a moral standpoint, if he wants to hire Bonomo and say, hey, we're not going to care about the political stances, no matter how offensive or how pissed off it makes people, we're just not going to care. That's separate from the poker coaching, and we're not going to get involved, fine. I can, I can support that. In fact, like on these college campuses, I don't want to get back down that rabbit hole too much, but if all these presidents that have gotten in hot water with their congressional testimony, if they were just to say, you know what, we've decided that we really just should go towards a free speech model in all ways on the campus. We've been making a mistake by trying to censor what we call hate speech. So we're just going to allow people to express their opinions, and if they're controversial, the students are just going to have to deal with it because that's the way life is, and we're not going to punish speech anymore. If that were the approach, I would actually say, okay, well, fine. Then if people who are very supportive of the Palestinians and very supportive of Hamas and and hate the Jews and want to make awful statements about Jews. I'm not going to be happy to read about them or hear them as a Jew, but as long as I know that other statements of things I do agree with that people on college campuses would find offensive, if those can be made, then fine. Then it's fair to everybody. So I just want things to be fair and consistent and I don't think. So, what that, about actual Nazis on campus? You'd be good with that. Well, see, this is where the challenge be, uh, comes in: is where you have to find a way to you know, Nazi prevent flags, jackboots, all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, so that's that's the thing here is that I would actually prefer that over this selective enforcement of what they call hate speech. So. They've what got to go one way or the other. In, they, you know, dressed up in clan outfits and they're carrying uh, crosses uh, through the 
the, the quad or whatever. Well, or, I mean, it threat, wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be good. But th- that's why they have to go one way or the other. They have to go with. But wouldn't that wouldn't that create a, an atmosphere of tension that could be really bad? Well, it, it could be. Yes. Yeah. So they they could yeah. they could also just go back to kind of the earlier model from like the eighties, where just something that's just like outright direct uh, racism or anti-Semitism that they're going to do something about anything that's kind of uh, questionable, then they'll just let it happen. So if, if they, and then apply it fairly to both sides. So this way, for example, if someone comes and says that they want to speak that trans women aren't really women and that they're really men, if they want to make speeches like that, they should be able to, whereas today you can't do that. So like that, that sort of thing is something that could be more allowed. My only real point in bringing it up is that I've been down that free speech absolutist route and it, it generally doesn't end well, unfortunately. Well, what can happen is it can devolve into just being offensive for the sake of being offensive. And then it, it can become kind of chaos. So that's why there have to be at least some standards set up that are consistent whatever they are. I'm not even saying there shouldn't be some kind of standards as far as what they call hate speech, but it should be something that rises to a pretty high level before there's anything that is considered a violation of the rules there is the way I feel it should be. and, and, And I agree. All I'm saying is that there is a line. Everyone has a line. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, so it, it does get kind of dicey. Yeah, no, but and, and I agree with that. I'm just saying that I think that there, it would be preferable to me at least if it was just kind of like a free speech free for all, provided no one's personally harassed like directly or or uh, threatened or anything like that. Just speech that's offensive. I'd prefer that it's all allowed over selective enforcement of we're allowing the offensive speech we agree with, but disallowing even the slightest bit of offensive speech. Or what we deem offensive that we don't agree with. That's uh, and that's I what's think been... the only danger there is you could create a really really hostile atmosphere. Well, right. And that's what I'm saying. That's not ideal. I'm saying that just picking one over the other, I'd prefer that the the totally free for all sort of thing over this selective enforcement thing. But the, I think the best way is to go roll the clock back several decades and go by those standards because those worked well, a lot better. Selective enforcement too. That's saying that. We're not okay with this kind of speech. We're okay with the rest, right? So it's still selective. It's just you're selecting something that most people agree with. Okay, we won't talk about that. Well, I think it's just like more severity, like just it's selecting what's but it's still the most selective. It, it, yeah, you know but saying. it's a little different than than ideologically selective, which is where it's really unfair. Right. And okay, that's, I, I would agree with that. If it's broadly selective, then yeah. I would be okay with it. You know? Yeah. Okay, so I, uh, I don't have that much more to say about this topic. I just, you know, I, I bet a lot of people would have expected that I would have been all gung ho. Hey, I'm glad that people objecting to this. They shouldn't have hired Bonomo. They, how can he do this? I'm not. Even with my personal feelings about Bonomo and being a Jew myself and having strong feelings about the Hamas situation. I, I still can't support cancellation, but it's it's got to be fair on both sides too. So, but I do right, think. But you, as a person, say that you would not want to give money to Justin Bonomo because of his views, right? 
Well, yes, but there's a, there's a lot of people who wouldn't want to give money to that I just don't like, even if it's not about political sure. views. There, there's there's right wingers right. that wouldn't and, and want to give money to for that reason. And that's not necessarily the same as cancelization, but that does point out the um, the dangers of putting your political views, especially if they're extreme political views, out there. Is that you will get, uh, if not outright cancellation, you will get people that just. They don't want to give you money, or they don't want to be associated. Oh yeah, yeah, that'll yeah. happen. Yeah, and that's that is a danger, and yeah. that part is not as bad if if people are just not wanting to support someone that is putting out views they disagree with. Then that's their choice. Yeah, everybody has the right how to spend their own money. It's just when there starts to become pressure to don't let this person have a job because we don't like them. That's a different story. Not wanting to personally give your money to them. That's much more so each person's would you individual tweet right. Publicly, for instance, um, I wouldn't sign up for run at once training because I don't want to give Justin Bonomo money. I mean, yeah, I, I, I would tweet that. I, I wouldn't really have a reason to tweet well, that now. That's how but a cancellation starts, though, right? That's no, because I, I would also qualify it. Starts. I would also qualify it with, but <laughs> I don't object to him being hired. That I, I personally don't want to pay for it i personally wouldn't want to give him money but i'm not right but what i'm saying is you put that out out there in the public which is your right to do you can and then a bunch of other people are are like yeah you know what i feel the same way and they retweet it and they quote it and they they start tweeting the same thing and that's how people get canceled (laughs) yeah but it's usually accompanied with you need to fire this person to get my business back it's usually like you you go to a business and the business is totally unrelated to the controversy and you say i you need to fire this person or i'm not gonna give this place business again and i'm gonna tell everyone i know not to that's where it comes in rather than just i'm personally not going to give this person my direct business i like i wouldn't even stay away from run it once as products if I knew Justin Bonomo wasn't getting the money personally, then I, I wouldn't stay away from their products. Otherwise, I just wouldn't get his. So that's right. the difference here. I'm not one saying that everybody should boycott run at once till they fire him. I'm saying the opposite. The funny thing is a lot of these people claiming that they would boycott and trying to cancel people are never – we're never customers to begin with. You know what I mean? We're never even potential customers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot too. Yeah. All right. So – Moving on to the next subject we have here, might as well stick to another Phil Galfond topic, though a very different one, much less controversial, and that is run-it-once poker is coming back. You thought it was dead, but it's actually not dead. I did think it was dead. I thought it was dead, too. I thought it was dead (laughs) when I was talking to you about it in a parking garage like three years ago or whenever that was. Yeah, so we we all thought it was gone. I remember you were on the show with me when when he made the announcement that it's finally shutting down, that we talked about the mistakes it made and how it probably wasn't ever coming back. But it was bought by a company called Rush Street Gaming, and it was bought for, I think, five-point-something million and Phil was technically going to be an employee there in a similar way to what usually happens when companies are acquired and yep. they get a certain number of years with that employee, even if just they do nothing just to keep them from starting a competing product or whatever else. In fact, there was even a takeoff on that, on that show, Silicon Valley. Well, where- a non-compete is usually separate from... Uh, 
being you know being hired on to work for the company. Um, but they 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 can be together, but they can also be separate. You know. Yeah. Well, I'm just saying sometimes that's associated with it, just to kind of put the person out of commission for a while to not sure. uh, be able yep. to do anything that would bring people over to whatever they're doing next. And uh, so Galfond is there for some time, but I don't think he's going to have that much of a leadership role there. I don't know for sure if that's the case. But anyway, this was announced back in March of 2022, so it's almost been two years. For sure, Run It Once lost a lot of money. It was funny because after the sale, people were congratulating Phil. Wow, you know, all those millions of dollars. Wow, Phil, you just keep winning. I'm like, no, he didn't win here. They What was the sale price? I think it was like five point something million or something. It wasn't uh, wasn't going to be nearly enough to make back what was lost here. They burned a lot of money over time. That seems high. I wonder what their real assets are. Well, it was it was basically the software, and I mean, I guess it could be the software. I'd be surprised that it would be valued high, that high, given what it was. I wonder. A decent part of it might also be the customer list, and maybe some other info of the company. I, I, I don't know. I'm surprised it's that high, though, honestly. Yeah, it was $5.8 million. That's what it was. So, yeah, I was remembering correctly. So, And that's that's not Phil getting that, because Phil didn't use all Phil's money to start this company anyway. So. Yeah, and, and I'm sure they spent way more than that. I'm sure they lost way more than that in the time that they were uh, running, because it was never successful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so people who felt jealous of him that he just can't ever lose, like, like, nope, he lost on that one. So anyway, I thought the chance of it actually coming back on a legalized site was pretty low. I thought that Rush Street was basically taking a shot with it. They were, <clears throat> they were never going to really get it going. And I thought they were going to realize pretty soon after that that running a legalized online poker site just isn't lucrative in the U.S. because of the state-by-state situation. The player pool just isn't big enough, and it's just a money pit. So I don't know if any of these legal online poker sites in the U.S. are making money, and if they are, they're barely making anything. But I think most of them are losing. Possibly all of them are losing. I was told at one point, almost 10 years ago, that WSOP.com was taking a bath and losing a fortune. I don't know about today, but they are still pretty dead, even with the combined you know, wonder, player pools. Do they have any licenses associated with that site? So I didn't know that at the time, but I, I know it now. But I didn't know at the time whether they had, whether Rush Street had any licenses to use. But we now no, have I mean, our answer. That came with uh, Phil Galfon's company. Oh, no, no, I no. wonder no. if that's where some of the value was. No, they didn't have any licenses. The licenses were with, huh. on Rush Street's side, yeah. Even in other countries? Uh, this isn't... They they may have in other countries, but this is not going to affect that. This is about the U.S. Gotcha. So almost two years later, Rush Street is actually trying to make a go at it. A piece was put up on Poker Fuse, which is a poker news site, but keep in mind this almost looks like an advertorial. In fact, it, I'm pretty sure it was. But still, it gave some useful information that we should talk about here. So basically, Rush Street is going to be launching Run It Once Poker USA, and they've been hiring people through LinkedIn, and there's several people already hired, including a tournament director, which is interesting because the software that 
Galphon Soul did not have tournaments. So this is going to be interesting. I don't know how they're going to manage that. But maybe they've added it since then. It has been almost two years. But they're also looking to hire a director of poker room management and a director of poker marketing. And these were published in late November 2023. All Which of these, one are you applying for? Well, that, that's interesting you asked that. Uh, all of these are uh, based in their Malta office. I don't know if you... I don't know if you have to move to Malta. That would kind of suck. But the director of poker room management will be overseeing critical aspects such as rake policies and game offerings and ensuring the creation of a healthy poker ecosystem with safe games. And one of the requirements of this director of poker room management is significant online poker expertise and a preference for candidates boasting a a history of serious play. So I mean, talk about something that I would definitely be qualified for. They're even You're in. they're they're even looking preferably for someone who has a technical background. So I talk about a, a good role for me here. I just uh, wouldn't want it at this point in my life. Also, you'd be reporting to someone above you who is the director of poker so you're not even the whole uh director of all the poker just like managing the poker room and then still reporting to the head of poker so i I wouldn't want to do that like if, if i got this job where i could like really be the top guy running all the poker there and making the top level decisions then it could be appealing as long as they didn't have to move anywhere but the problem is, I know this is going to be a fail site. That's going to be tough to get, then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but this also, I think, is going to be a fail site, which would be very frustrating. It's one thing to be appointed a manager of a site that's likely to take off, and it would be satisfying to watch it grow and, and shaping a major site that's going to have a big impact on poker. If it's going to be one of these legalized U.S. fail sites, like we see how those are doing. Like, to, Imagine having to put in all this busy work for a site with like 300 players a week. It's just something i'd find very unappealing and unsatisfying you know what though even if you knew it was going to be a fail site um if you were interested in breaking into the business i don't think it would be a horrible thing to do even if you knew that it was going to probably go tits up in six months or whatever it is yes at least it's something on your resume to say that you have done this type of thing before well yes and that that's why i'm bringing my age into it too that if i were younger and i was looking to eventually be someone like the top dog at one of the bigger sites and thought, okay, well, let's yep. get this under my belt so then I can move up to that somewhere. Yep. And especially if I was younger and had didn't have a kid and could move places, that'd be a different story. At, at this age, I would not want to take something like that to attempt to move up or establish things. I mean, I'm almost 52 years old. Like, what, I'm going to start with this now. So it's not something that I would want to take at this point, especially on a fail site. As If it was like a real top-level poker management on a f- site that was going to be something likely to succeed, that's a different story. But uh, this, no. By the way, we have someone else here with us, uh, Trey Daruski. Hello. What's happening, Jeff? Happy New Year. Calwatt, great to see you. Happy uh, New Year, Trader I didn't say Happy New Year to Calwatt. Oops. He didn't say it to me, though, so I feel better. Okay, well. Hey, by the way, when I tried to listen on my phone, I couldn't hear it. It could be me. Yeah, I, but, I, um, I know. I, I, 
I keep hearing this now. I thought I fixed the damn problem. I think I made it worse. So it's maybe right on my iPad. Maybe I should go work on AC, at ACR. I think that's uh, that was like an ACR type fail. A couple of years in Malta could be good for little Benjamin outside <laughs> the U.S. and explore other things. <sighs> okay. Well, anyway, the the they are trying to really hire though. You know, they're they're really trying to hire those two positions. They've already hired other positions, including that head of poker that I was talking about, and. They have not announced a release date, but it is said in this Poker Fuse article, which again I think is a puff piece that they paid for, they meaning Rust Street Gaming. It looks like uh, it'll be in the first half of 2024, according to this article, and that they're expecting that it will go at least in Michigan and New Jersey. And the reason for that has to do with the licensing that Rush Street already has because they have the betting brand Bet Rivers and Bet Rivers does have licenses in those two states. So they'll probably pop up sometime in the first half of this year in Michigan and New Jersey and maybe they'll even find ways to pop up elsewhere. So there are still some questions. Do they actually have tournaments ready to go? Or is this kind of a future thing? They have had almost two years to work on it and add them. And also, will anything be different on Run It Once US than the existing fail sites in the US? And as much as I have criticized Run It Once Poker in the past, if it fails here, I don't think this is going to be their fault. I think it is going to be the fault of the market because these state-by-state markets simply aren't working out. And we can see that with PokerStars, which has great software. And the regular PokerStars brand does well, but then in the state-by-state markets, they don't do well. And the WSOP.com site, even having the combined player pool in Nevada, Delaware, New Jersey, with, with all the combination of pools, it's still not helping much. It's still a ghost town, even with the WSOP brand behind it. The only thing that seems to do well on there are these tournaments where you can win bracelets or rings. So I don't have very much faith at all that this is going to make any money. I think Rush Treat bought it and then said, hey, you know, we'd like to try online poker, and $5.8 million isn't that much, at least for them. So they're going to give it a go. It's going to be a fail, like all these other sites are in the legalized market, and that's going to be that. And it's going to go down, and that's going to be the end of Run at Once. That's my prediction. The only way I see this changing is if there is a major difference between then and now in the legalization of online poker. So let's say it gets legalized in California, it gets legalized in Texas, it gets legalized in New York, it gets legalized in Florida, and then these states can combine with each other. And then one of these run-at-once sites that Rush Street is operating is able to do this. And then you have a very big player pool. Okay, well, then it can work. The software wasn't bad. It just didn't have the basics down. Didn't have tournaments. Didn't have resizable tables, which they finally put in, but took a while. And even their rakeback program was fake. It was, their rakeback program was essentially a jackpot drop. And that pissed people off, too. 
So they just sure. How funny would it be if this company took the same software and just made it into an amazing success and just <laughs> that it was just a terribly run company? You know, it's possible that could happen if there was a bigger market. Because, as I said, the software yeah. wasn't bad, and they actually had some interesting innovations. Like the splash the pot thing, that actually can be fun. I could see that really catching on. So I, I thought the avatars that were changing faces based upon how you played were stupid and, uh, in fact, degrading in some ways. But I did think that there were some innovations there that people could like. It's just they didn't have the basics going. They prioritized all the wrong things, and it just wasn't run well. But just the software itself, you add tournaments to it, you run the thing properly, and you have a decent market. Yeah, it could do well, but the problem is the market just sucks. Like I think it's going to fail, but not for the reason that the original run it once failed. I think it's just going to fail because I, I think the market's you're, bad. You're probably right. <laughs> I just think it would be funny. It would be funny. But anyway, that's uh, it's coming back, so there's not much more to say. And Galfon doesn't seem to be really talking about this. Now, it's not his company anymore. He's still working for them, technically, I think. But he's not really <laughs> talking about it. He's more talking about Justin Bonomo and hiring him. So it's just kind of one of these quiet things that's happening in the background. The only reason I know about it is because of Poker Fuse putting out this probably advertorial that I happen to see. Otherwise, really, no one's talking about this. But I figured after all the run at once poker talk we've done in the past, I had to give you guys that update. So moving on. Here's an interesting one. Any other week, this would have been one of the top stories. Because I think it's interesting that we had the big things to talk about with GG and ACR. But Munker Guy is someone that I have barely mentioned on this show. Munker Guy is the creator of the Munker charts, the Munker tools. These are essentially poker solvers, poker training tools, and they can be used to cheat. They're not made for that. They can be misused, I guess, in the same way a gun can be misused. But they were only mentioned on this show once, and that was when we were playing Ali Imstravik's dumb excuses for his cheating, and he was describing one of the times he cheated that he was using the Munker charts. He didn't stop to explain what they were, but I stopped and explained what they were. And so I said, you know, the Munker charts, these are uh, part of the Munker tools, the, this Munker solver that this guy, Munker guy, puts out, and that there's nothing wrong with using the Munker tools, but that Ali was using it while he was playing. And then that's a different story. So that's basically where I left off. And I said, I didn't really know who Munker guy was, but from what I saw of him on Twitter, he seemed okay. And in fact, sometimes he'd tweet things that were kind of funny. I didn't know his name, didn't know much about him, hadn't heard anything bad about him. Guy seemed okay. Just seemed like a guy who wrote these solvers. And that was that. I didn't even know where he was from. I didn't know if he was American or Europe. I didn't know what it was. A controversy came that I would not have expected from Munker Guy, who I have to assume is doing pretty well. I don't know for sure, but it seems like his tools, which are fairly expensive, are, are popular enough to make him decent money. And also, he rents out server space, because I guess you need a pretty powerful system to run these tools with any kind of speed. Because these solvers can be very computationally intensive so just running these on a standard laptop isn't going to cut it unless you want to wait a long time. So he was renting out server space on powerful systems for a lot of money per month. 
So I have to think the guy was doing pretty well. So that's why it surprised me when Munker Guy was accused by a European customer of stealing 21K worth of crypto. And from everything I could see, it seemed like it was true. In fact, Munker Guy ended up admitting to most of it, though still oddly asserting that he was in the right. So here's what happened. A guy named Smile1337, which strangely enough is Smile7331 on Twitter. Like his, or I guess it's S-M-I-L-L-E. Maybe it's S-Milly. I read it as Smile, but S-M-I-L-L-E-7331 on Twitter, and his name is Smile1337, whatever. He writes, Hello, S-Milly here. I have used Munker Guy's rental service, meaning the servers, for a couple of months now and made a small error by sending money from a friend to his address, but he didn't want to send it back. Everything further is in the post, and he links to a 2 plus 2 post. So then here's the 2 plus 2 post. He wrote, hello, folks. Merry Christmas. I think posted like on Christmas or the 26th. I am Daniel Smiljovic, a.k.a. Smilly the Hero, High Stakes Reg, and Stunt Double of Teddy KGB. Maybe he looks like Teddy KGB from Rounders. I don't know. I'm renting a server from Munker Guy. About a month ago, I had to send a friend $21,744 in Tether, which is a cryptocurrency. By mistake, I sent previously used address, which was the one I used to pay for Munker Guy. I realized the mistake a few days after when my friend told me he was waiting for his Tether. I texted Munker Guy about it, and at first he said he never received it. I checked on the blockchain, and the money had been transferred to an exchange about an, af- an hour after it arrived. I confronted him about it, and he now said the address belonged to a friend. He then also said his friend's account got frozen for know-your-customer purposes. I've asked about who the friend was, what exchange it was. Munker Guy has decided not to answer any of those questions. It is also interesting to note that the Ethereum address that was receiving payments in Tether on a regular basis but suddenly stopped the moment my 21K hit. Please be aware of this guy if you're using his rental service. I've always paid without any problems, no delays, and this is not the way how you should run a business. And then he gave a way to look at the blockchain. So this looked pretty bad. I mean, I'll I'll be honest, (laughs) it's pretty obnoxious, if true. Then he posted a screenshot from November 14th of Munker Guy writing to him in what looks like Gmail. He said it's an exchange, he meaning Munker Guy's friend. He said it's an exchange account, not cold wallet, and it's locked because he didn't verify KYC, meaning know your customer. I asked him to do the KYC and withdraw the funds. He seems pretty annoyed. Maybe it's true. I don't know. And this was in response to the concern about what happened to the tether. Then also on November 14th, Munker Guy wrote, Hi, man, this is a shitty situation. The 2468 dollars in tether for the servers was sent to a friend to trade for paypal all my servers are paid through paypal i asked him about the 21k he says he doesn't have access to that wallet anymore didn't receive the 21k i'm trying to find out exactly what this means and how to get the money back now so this s millie guy or smile whatever you want to call him he felt like he's just being lied to here because in case you're not following this s millie was trying to send 21k to a friend Almost 22K, 21,744. 
he had incorrectly remembered that the last used crypto address that he had sent to was his friend and not Bunker Guy. So he just quickly clicked through, okay, resend to the last person I sent to, and then it went to Munker Guy because he had forgotten that he had paid Munker Guy for that server through uh, the, you know, sending the tether. So he's like, oh, no, I accidentally sent it to Munker Guy. Kind of stupid to not check on this before you send over 21K. I'd be double-checking and triple-checking and quadruple-checking, but it makes sense why this could happen. I'm not saying it would happen to me, but I could see how this could happen. Whatever it is, this isn't Munker Guy's money to keep. This is not finder keepers, losers, weepers. So he starts asking Munker Guy, and Munker Guy gives him a million different stories. <laughs> oh, my, my friend didn't receive it. Oh, actually, my friend did receive it, but it's it's stuck in the exchange. Oh, he's annoyed. Like, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not. We'll, we'll see if we can get the money. It, it, the whole thing is very weird. There was still the possibility at the time that this S. Millie guy was posting things out of context, that maybe he was not really as bad as it appeared. Maybe there's more to the story. His bunker guy had never been accused of anything like this before. Maybe this was something that when we found out the truth from bunker guy, we'd see it very differently. Well, that doubt was erased pretty quickly. Here's what bunker guy tweeted after Doug Polk publicized the story a little bit. Munker Guy wrote, I don't have his money. I didn't ask him to send this money. I don't owe him any money. For context, here's some more details. The 21K wasn't meant to be sent to Munker Guy. For some reason, he loves to refer to himself in third person. We had no idea this money was coming. It was randomly sent by accident from his friend to an address we had previously used with S. Millie when paying for a server. Two, the address wasn't a Munker Guy wallet. We often trade Tether for PayPal to pay for servers and often use different addresses and have payments sent to different people. Three, S. Millie realized this mistake three days later and told us what happened and asked us to return the Tether. Four, we've been trying to resolve the issue and get the money back for him. This has been going on for more than a month, and I'm pretty sick of thinking about it. He thought that threatening me and posting publicly would help. I guess it's a free roll for him to try to get some money back. The entire thing is pretty fucked up, in my opinion. Well, that looks like a lot of bullshit. First of all, what do you mean it's a free roll for him to try to get his money back? Like, it's the guy's money. Give it back. It's not a free roll. He's just trying to get his damn money back. But also, this all boils down to someone received the money. This wasn't a case of accidentally sending the money to some crypto address that you don't know who owns it, and now you can't contact the person to get it back. That's a different story. I'm talking about money was sent to an address that Munker Guy had been using to receive payments in the past. In fact, he received a payment from S. Millie in the past on that exact address. So obviously, Munker Guy had some control of that address. And if others also had control of that address, then Munker Guy knows who they are. And in fact, Munker Guy didn't deny knowing who received it. In those screenshots, he was saying his, quote, friend got it, but that the money got stuck somehow. So either Munker Guy has to produce the money or Munker Guy needs to out who stole it. There's no such thing as, well, you sent it to me, somehow my friend got it, and my friend got the money stuck and isn't cooperating, but I'm not going to tell you who my friend is. You can't do that. You've either got to out the friend, pressure the friend to give the money back, or give the money back yourself. There's no such thing as, you sent it to me, somehow my friend has it, it's gone, my friend's not cooperating, and no, I'm not telling you who it is. There's no such thing as that. You, you can't pull that. 
So, of course, everybody thought the whole friend thing was bullshit, and Munker guy just wanted to keep the money. He just thought he could get away with keeping the money, because it's crypto, there's no way to charge it back, and he can just claim someone else got it. Very weird thing to do when you have a successful business with selling solvers and server space, but uh, apparently that's what happened. Because clearly someone got the 21K, and Munker guy knew who it was, he just wasn't helping identify who that person was. Well, it got more ridiculous from there. You'd think at this point, when people were clobbering Munker guy on Twitter about the whole thing and saying that he looks like a scammer and a thief and all that, you'd think Munker guy would get the picture that this isn't going well and he's ruining his rep, which was formerly good. But he kept doubling down. Now, he got a little bit of a reprieve when the whole GG Poker Super Users story broke and all of a sudden everyone forgot about Munker guy. But... I didn't want to see that happen, so I actually put it back out there. And I was saying that Munker Guy is like the Gary Condit of poker. If you remember, Gary Condit was the congressman who was having an affair with an intern named Chandra Levy, who was much younger than him, and then she got murdered in D.C. It's a murder that was never solved. There was some suspicion that he did it or that he hired someone to do it. Whatever it was, the whole thing looked very bad. And then the 9-11 attacks happened, and nobody talked about Gary Condit anymore. So I looked at this the same way on a smaller scale, that the GG Poker Super User thing happened, and then no one wanted to talk about Munker Guy anymore. So I put it out there that this is happening, and people are kind of forgetting about this when they shouldn't, and that partially helped reinvigorate the story. Anyway, Munker Guy was not deterred, and he was doubling down on his bullshit, even knowing that S. Milley was putting everything out there that was happening. This Munker Guy was just really, really clueless and did not have much as far as skills and being introspective. S. Milley tweeted, So this is how you try to find a solution? Giving me a discount while still being profitable per month? Why would you want to protect your, quote, friend? Quite the good business model you have there. And what's he talking about? He included a screenshot. I mean, this is unbelievable. S. Milley writes to Munker Guy. This is after the whole thing blew up on Twitter. He writes, will we resolve this issue or not? And then Munker Guy responded, the best I can do is offer a discount of $200 a month on the server, and I can extend that to your friend also. I think you're both renting one. <laughs> So the guy steals 21K from S. Milley, and then S. Milley's trying to get it back. It's like, we're going to resolve this? And then Munker Guy's like, well, no, but the best I can do is give you a discount on doing continued business with me. Can you believe this? He'll give him a $200 a month discount to continue doing business with him. Unbelievable. So S. Milley just responded, not going to happen. And then posted that screenshot. So then just everyone just was laying into Munker Guy for being a complete dick. Imagine, like, the guy lost 21K, more than 21K, sending it to Munker Guy's address. Munker Guy won't help. And the Munker Guy's offering him discounts as a way to compensate him. It's like, oh, I'll give you a discount for continuing to rent servers from me. Unbelievable. Now, there's still the question as to who Munker Guy was, and some people were commenting, huh, it's funny that Munker Guy's been around for some time. We don't know who he is. How can no one know who he is? 
Well, Jared Smith did a bit of looking around, and he found who it was. So good for him. Munker guy is Daniel James Francis of New Zealand. And there's even a picture of him if you Google him. If you Google Daniel James Francis poker, you'll see a picture of him. He's wearing a red shirt. He has glasses on. He looks around 40 years old. And yeah, he just kind of looks like your standard computer nerd who's also into poker. But you can see a picture of Munker guy. There he is. It's definitely him. Well, people were just pounding Munker guy pretty hard on Twitter at that point. Plus, he knew that his identity got out. So, on January 1st, Munker guy tweeted, again, referring to himself in the third person, Munker guy has come to an agreement with a person who received the 21,744 tether sent by mistake. The money will be repaid in full. So people responded saying, oh, so you did have the money the whole time, <laughs> which is probably true. Basically, Munker guy realized he couldn't outsmart poker Twitter and convince everyone that the money was just gone and Munker guy had no control of it. Now, if you really want to be charitable, you can say that maybe Munker guy has just an asshole friend who wouldn't return it. And Munker guy had to send it just to save his own reputation, realizing that 21K isn't worth destroying his business over. But I think the more likely explanation was that Munker Guy had it the whole time and just didn't want to return it. Now, you might ask, why would he do that? Why would a guy who's been a reputable businessman in the poker landscape, why would he just go rogue like this and steal 21K? Which isn't chump change, but he's selling these expensive servers, not even selling, renting them, and selling these expensive solvers, he's got to be making pretty good money. So why would he ruin all of that for 21K? It doesn't make any sense. Well, I think I have an answer. And even when I give you the answer, it may not make a lot of sense to you. I've said for a long time that the worst thing to do when dealing with a business is to overpay. Because when it comes to getting the money back, it's very difficult. And this is true of all businesses. It's true of small businesses and even big businesses. Now, it's worse with small businesses, but even with big businesses, it's tough. Because when you have not paid yet, you have leverage. You always have leverage if you have not paid the bill. Because if there's something you disagree with, if you feel strongly enough, you could just not pay. I mean, yeah, they can try to sue you or try to send collection agents after you, but it's a pain in the ass for them to do that. So when you have not paid yet, the power is really in your hands. And if you feel like something is not to your satisfaction or is in error, then you can just withhold payment at all until they fix it. And I've done that many times, especially when there's an error. Like I'll have a medical bill where there's a, an error or something I think is shady. And I'll say, I don't agree with this. This needs to be fixed. And then they'll say to me, well, okay, how about you just pay the money that you agree you owe, and we'll discuss the rest later. And I say, nope, not doing that. I don't pay incorrect bills. I will send what I owe when the bill is correct. And if you can't send me a correct bill, then I'm not going to pay anything. And that will give them a big incentive to correct everything and to act 
in a more ethical fashion because they know I just won't pay. And I'm not kidding. I really won't pay. I will never send a partial payment and then discuss the rest that I feel is incorrect because then I have no leverage. And it's just also, what's the point? Because you're still going to owe them money. Any kind of implications from owning the money, like like your credit or having collection agents after you, it's, it's the same thing. If you owe more or less, it's an unpaid bill. So you might as well not pay anything. If there's going to be some in dispute that they won't agree with you, shouldn't be owed. So I always advise people never pay until the bill is correct. Never overpay and fix something later. I've had it before, like where a hotel says, hey, we'll fix this error later when the manager gets in. Just pay this now. I go, no, I'm not doing that either. (laughs) I don't want to have my money in your hands and have you give back to me what's right. So how does that apply here? Well, because it's something psychological. And I don't feel this way, by the way. I've never felt that if I'm holding the money at the moment that it's more mine than if I'm not holding it. If it's money that was sent to me in error or that I just don't have a moral reason to be holding, or at least permanently holding. But many others think differently, even if they don't realize it. It is just much, much harder to take money that you presently have and give it to someone than it is to accept less than you were asking for when you don't have anything yet. You've heard the old saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Well, that kind of applies here. So once a business, whether small or large, is holding your money, they just really are going to try to find an excuse not to send it back. So I think with Munker Guy, he got the 21.7K. Of course, it wasn't really owed to him and he wasn't expecting it, but he got it and he knew he had it. And he thought, oh, sweet. I don't know where this crypto came from, but okay, nice. I wasn't expecting this, but wow, it's pennies from heaven. Great. I have 21K more than I thought I'd be getting. So for three days, he gets to feel good that just money landed in his wallet. Then he gets the bad news, an email saying, hey, by the way, this is my 21K. I'm the one who sent it to you by accident. Can you send it back? And Munker guy feels like, oh, man, I was enjoying that 21K for these three days. Like, I, I don't need the money necessarily, but it's nice to have. It's nice to have an extra 21K. And I, I thought it was mine, and now it's not going to be mine anymore. So I think at that point, he just didn't want to return it. I don't know how he rationalized this in his head. I don't know if he just wanted to be an outright thief and keep something that wasn't his. Or just kind of think, hey, you know, if someone sends me money, tough luck on them. I don't know what it was. I don't know how he rationalized it. Could just be he wanted it. And he didn't have to rationalize it. I mean, how do thieves rationalize anything? How do scammers rationalize anything? So he may have just thought, I like having it. And I don't want to give it back. And if I can get away without giving it back, I will. So since it's crypto, he can make a bunch of excuses. Oh, this isn't my wallet. Someone else took it. It got caught on an exchange and he couldn't cash it out. Just every excuse in the book until maybe the guy will give up. He didn't realize this was going to catch on and go semi-viral. Now, once it did catch on and go semi-viral, that was the point to immediately back down. But by that point, he deluded himself that 
he could outsmart the Twitter public and spin this to make it look like the other guy is just being unreasonable. But nobody was buying it. And even when Munker Guy ended up sending this back, he still had a lot of people making fun of him and mocking him. There were a few people saying, okay, good, he did the right thing, let's leave him alone, otherwise we won't incentivize anyone else for doing the right thing in the future. And yeah, I understand those points, but it's not like a bunch of people said, oh, Munker Guy, you're a great dude, or hey, very nice of you to cover for what your friend did. People were making jokes about the whole thing with his friend. A person named Soheb posted an image of a guy pointing to himself in the mirror and captioned it, Munker guy making his case to the other party like. (laughs) I mean, that's true. We don't know 100% it's true, but it's probably true. There probably was no friend. Now, if there was a friend, maybe they're going to split it. Who knows? But there's no way that Munker guy had no influence in getting this money back. There's just no way. Does not make logical sense. So he was still sticking to the whole narrative about it being a friend without directly saying it in his tweet. Munker guy has come to an agreement with the person who received the tether sent by mistake. The money will be repaid in full. <laughs> so he's actually trying to claim that the person who received it, a supposed friend of his, has come to an agreement with him. So he'll get the money back and then can send it on to S. Milley, who, by the way, verified he received it. So the situation's over now. But come on, he came to an agreement with the person who received it? I don't believe that. What agreement do you have to come to? How about just, you got this money by mistake that was from one of my customers, send it back to me. What agreement is there? Can you imagine having a friend who has you come to an agreement with them when they get money sent to them by mistake that's meant for you? Like, what kind of friend is that? Why would you not just out that person if they're going to be like that to you? So I don't believe there was ever a friend. I mean, this was a wallet that was being used to receive money from S. Milley and others who were renting the servers. And as he pointed out, as soon as the 21K was sent by accident, it was quickly sent to an exchange, cashed out, and then they never used that wallet again. That was especially suspicious. So this is just Munker guy trying to appropriate 21K. I mean, let's be honest here. Some people then posed this question in general, asking, what would you do in this spot if you just received 21K that you're not expecting and it turns out it was sent to you by mistake, would you return it? And some people put up polls for people to answer. It is a good question what percentage of the population and also what percentage of the poker population would return it. I would 100% return it. In fact, I would 100% return any amount, even something huge, and even if I knew I could get away with stealing it. So let's say just some stranger sent me $3 million. And let's say he had no legal recourse. Let's just make it simple. I know he probably would have legal recourse, but let's just assume that he wouldn't have any legal recourse and I could get away clean with the $3 million. I wouldn't do it. I'd send it back because it's not mine. I'd feel awful taking that. So if you get money sent to you erroneously, you send it back. It's that simple. Now, I don't think this was something that could be criminally prosecuted. And I'm not talking about New Zealand where Munker Guy lives, but let's just pretend this happened in the U.S. 
I don't believe that you could get the other person criminally prosecuted, even if they cashed out the money, because they could have a lot of answers as to why they didn't have criminal intent. They could just say they believed it was a gift. They could say that they thought they were just being sent that because they provided a good service, and maybe the person won a lot of money playing poker with the Munker tools. So they got it, they cashed it out, and then the person who gave the gift thought better of it and wanted to take it back, and they did not want to return the money at that point because the gift had already been given. So I don't believe a criminal prosecution could be made on this. It's not the same thing as going to an ATM and trying to withdraw $200 and it spits out 20000 That is actually a crime and you would be prosecuted for that. You'd have to return this to the bank very quickly to not get prosecuted. But this is different because this is just receiving cryptocurrency that you weren't expecting and there's no crime in that. And then cashing it out, there's no crime in it. And then you have to make the decision whether to send it back to the person who sent it to you. And you can just claim you thought it was a gift. And that you don't want to send it back. Now, they could sue you. And there's a good chance they could win it back in court civilly. But I'm talking about criminally. I don't think a criminal case could be made out of that. But that doesn't make it any more ethical. So Munker Guy was a total piece of shit to attempt this. But more amazingly, I don't know how he thought he'd get away with it once it got brought to social media. Once S. Millie posted about it, and once Doug Polk amplified it by, quote, tweeting it and asking if it was true, Bunker Guy should have immediately backed down. I don't know how he thought he'd get out of this one. But a lot of times, people in poker believe they're smarter than everybody else. They believe that they can reason their way out of criticism regarding shady behavior. And they don't realize that there's a lot of other smart people in poker. And also, sometimes you don't need to be smart to see that something's shady. He just wasn't being honest with himself. He wasn't seeing how obvious it looked to anyone observing the situation that it was very, very unethical. Someone even said in response, when he said he's sending the money back, that... He should have done it sooner. He ruined his reputation for nothing. And that hits the nail right on the head. He ruined his reputation for nothing. Very strange story. Moving on, I want to talk about a very weird story involving a supposed kidnapping which occurred, or at least was alleged to have occurred, in Michigan. I will tell you the details, and you can decide for yourself whether you believe it. Because there's plenty of doubt, let's just say that. George Jansen, his last name is spelled J-A-N-S-S-E-N, was found with his hands zip-tied, and he claimed that he had just escaped from having been kidnapped and that he had been extorted for two years, and that the extortionists were also the kidnappers. George Jansen is 41 years old. He's from a town called Bad Axe, exactly the town, B-A-D space A-X-E, Michigan. And he was on a road in Mead Township, Michigan, which is fairly close to Bad Axe. 
this is at 12.30 a.m. on December 16th. His hands were zip-tied, and he claimed he had just escaped from those who had kidnapped him. He had been reported missing for five weeks after family members lost contact with him. He had disappeared with his car found empty and abandoned on a Monroe County road south of Detroit in mid-November. He told police that he had been held in a basement of a Toledo, Ohio house for 35 days and that he had escaped after they had brought him back to Bad Axe to try to retrieve more money to give to them. It's not clear how he claims he did escape them, especially with his hand zip-tied, but supposedly he escaped them. He has about $440,000 worth of Hendon Mob results, but that, of course, doesn't mean he's profitable in poker. That just means his total cash is. I had never heard of him before, nor had anyone else that I know that I've brought attention to this story. I guess he's just kind of one of these guys who's just there at tournaments and sometimes wins. The fact that he is not on the West Coast might also have to do why I hadn't heard of him before. He never had a tournament cash that was in the six figures. His best cash was $82,000, but it was pretty recently. It was September 2023 at the MSPT at the Venetian, the $1,600 buy-in event he won it. He also had a 79k cash on August 31st. This was in Ohio, also an MSPT event. However, he had no significant caches for a while prior to his 24k 23rd place finish at the World Series of Poker 2500 No Limit event. The rest of his caches were all on the small side, mostly in the three and four figure range. And this goes back uh, sometime until uh, 2022, where he had some low five-figure caches. It does look like he was entering a lot of events, so it's very possible that he was losing, and we also don't know if he was playing cash. But what we do know is that he had a business which has failed recently, and it failed not too long before he disappeared. He had a car dealership, and it closed at some point this year. When his car was found abandoned, it was noted that there were some $50 bills strewn about the floor and the passenger seat. (laughs) Now, how would that happen? So did the kidnappers just, like, pull him out of the car and just a big plume of money flew in the air in the car and landed on the floor and on the passenger seat? It's like in the movies where they grab someone and a bunch of stuff flies in the air, including a bunch of money, and then they drag him away and there's no one there to collect the money? Like, how are $50 bills on the floor? And why was it not even hundreds? Why was it 50s? Why is he carrying around 50s? <laughs> so there's $50 bills on the floor of the car, and he had, I guess, been gone for seven weeks, The car dealership closing earlier in the year likely indicates financial distress. 
And he claimed he was a target for two years of extortion, as I said earlier. He claimed that this was happening because the extortionists were aware that he was a winning poker player. However, note that the bigger scores came more recently. That came between August 31st and September 8th of 2023. He claimed this was going on for two years. He wasn't really cashing very much during those two years prior to that. So that doesn't even make much sense. And of all people to target, it's not like he just won the World Series of Poker main event. Like, why would they just pick some random poker grinder who at best is cashing low five figures, which is what he was doing for the past several years? The last time he had a significant score was in early 2019 when he cashed 75k at an HPT event. So, why was he even targeted? <laughs> like, here's a guy who's struggling and can't keep his business afloat, and he's not cashing large very often at these poker tournaments. Why target him of all people? I'm sure there's a lot richer people around that area of Michigan whom they could extort much more money from. So the whole premise of this doesn't make a lot of sense. When you're thinking of people around Michigan to extort money from, you don't pick just some grade Z poker pro that nobody's heard of who isn't even hitting anything big. That really doesn't make very much sense. Poker News did some good work on this one. They got the missing persons report via a public records request. And Poker News found via that request that there was a letter sent by George to a family member in mid-December. So I guess this is just before he was found. And I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but he capitalized seven, or I guess six different words in this letter that somehow the kidnappers allowed him to send. You know, people get kidnapped and held for seven weeks. They're, they're always allowed to send out letters to their family, right? I mean, there's nothing strange or unusual about that. <laughs> but in this letter, he capitalized a word beginning with K, then with I, then with D, then with N, then with A, and then I'm sure you can guess the last one, P. That was Kirby, Iggy, Daisy, Noah, Anthony, and Poker. Or Parker, not Poker. So I guess six names. Spells kidnap. Get it? So the family member getting this letter looks and sees that the only names mentioned, if you take the first letter of each name, and all these names don't really mean anything to them. So they don't know who Kirby and Iggy and Daisy and all these people are. So then they say, hmm, what could this mean? Oh, K-I-D-N-A-P. Oh, George has been kidnapped. Oh, my goodness. We know he's been kidnapped. Clever, huh? Doesn't this all sound like it's out of a movie? The cash that was on the seat and the floor after he disappeared? The letter that spells out kidnap in code? The being found after he escaped his abductors? with the zip tie still on. This sounds like someone who watched too many crime dramas or movies and thought this is the way that kidnappings worked. Also found by Poker News was that he claimed he was extorted for $2 million over two years. He was told to leave the cash at various drop points. 
And when asked to describe the first person who made contact with him and made these demands, he said that he couldn't see his face. It was a guy with a mask on, but that he thinks that the guy had a Mexican accent. The <laughs> Mexican guy in Michigan, the leader of a extortion and kidnapping ring, I guess. Hmm. Also, this Mexican guy didn't just grab him on the street. This Mexican guy was waiting for George, sitting in the passenger seat of George's vehicle when George got in it one night. (laughs) Got a question for you. How many times have you seen that in a movie? Someone gets in their car and someone pops out sitting in one of the other seats besides the driver. Usually a back seat, but sometimes the front seat. They're just there. And then they pull out a gun, and then they threaten or kill the person that they were waiting for. Somehow the person getting in the car never notices. Somehow it's just, they're completely oblivious to the human being sitting in one of the seats. In fact, even once they get in the car, they're oblivious until that person makes themselves known. Now compare that to how often you've ever read about this happening in real life. Like, how often has someone ever gotten in their car with someone they're waiting in the car for them that's somehow broken in the car and able to hide well enough to the where the victim gets in and doesn't notice until they're already sitting in the car? How often have you read about that situation actually occurring in real life? Because I've never read about it. But I've seen a lot of movies and TV shows where that occurs. I always kind of laugh at that, too. So that's part of this story, too. That the Well, Druff, well, I've, I've been rewatching Rockford Files, and this seems like like several episodes of the different elements. <laughs> it is like the Rockford Files, you're right. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, this guy watches too many crime dramas and just incorporates all the elements that he sees. Maybe he did watch like the Rockford Files for research on this. I should look at if there's any web history of him participating in forums discussing old TV shows, see where he got these ideas. It still doesn't explain how he got away from the kidnappers. The only explanation was why he was back near home. Because they drove him back there to get money that he had hidden and then escaped them somehow. The FBI is supposedly investigating this. It has been handed off from the local police to the FBI because it was a kidnapping, alleged kidnapping that crossed state lines. So I guess the truth will come out. I do wonder if he will be charged with filing a false police report if it is determined that he was lying about this, which I have to imagine is going to be the conclusion. Now, if he is lying about this, what would be the motivation? Well, nobody knows, but the assumption is that he owes money, and this was an excuse as to why he can't pay it. Maybe he chunked off money gambling that was meant for his business. And this could be the excuse to investors as to why the money's gone and why the business failed. Or maybe he was staked in poker and he chunked off those stakes when he wasn't supposed to, like playing things he wasn't supposed to play, and this is the excuse for why the money's gone. I'm just guessing here, making these things up, but I have a feeling when we find out the true story here, one, it'll turn out he was not kidnapped, And two, it'll be some sort of monetarily related motivation. 
probably to give an excuse as to where the money went. So I'm going to help the listeners out here. If any of you want to fake a kidnapping, I probably shouldn't do this, but just in case one of you wants to do it, I'm going to throw you a bone here and give you my tips on how to fake a kidnapping, which I've never done. I'm never going to do. But if you want to do it, I'm not encouraging you to, but if you choose to, here's how I suggest you do it. You know how OJ released that book, If I Did It? This will be if you do it. So first of all, take everything you've seen about kidnapping in the movies and TV shows, especially 70s crime dramas, and forget that. Just don't do anything you've seen in these shows. Don't leave money on the seats. Do not send coded letters. Do not have part of the story with someone waiting in the car when you get in the car. Do not have the perpetrator be of another race. And do not have a dramatic escape. By the way, he only had minor injuries. That's another thing that's a little bit doubtful. Like, very minor. So here's what you should do. First of all, you need to not establish any kind of elaborate props. If you want to leave your car somewhere, that's fine. But you shouldn't make it look like you were dragged out of your car. It should just be that you're, you never got in your car. Your car's just there. Because the cops can get into your car fine, whether it's locked or not. So let them get into your locked car and see you just never got in it. So someone like grabbed you off the street. Number two, if you do choose to reappear at some point, do not have yourself bound or anything that's a prop to indicate that you were just escaping a kidnapping. Just everything about you should be free. You should have a convincing story, such as that you were able to eventually break a lock on a window that had been locked from the outside, and when the kidnappers went away, you snuck out and then ran away. And don't have yourself found on the road by motorists. Go to a payphone and call 911, or if you can't find a payphone, then go to a business like a gas station and ask them to call the police for you. Make sure that... You do not eat well during the time you're gone. Use some discipline. Eat very little. Lose weight. If your story is going to involve any violence, you are going to have to actually harm yourself, not have a few cuts and scratches. Your story can also just have no violence. It doesn't have to have violence. But make sure the people you're describing who did it and what you went through matches the way your body looks. Make sure the reason for the kidnapping makes sense. Don't be a losing poker player who is supposedly targeted for $2 million worth of extortion. But have a convincing backstory as to why you were targeted as opposed to others who have more money than you or might be easier targets than you. So basically, run this through your head and think about the questions that will be asked of you. And if it's a question you can't answer without sounding like a bullshitter, then don't give that detail in the story. So these are my suggestions to you if you are going to fake a kidnapping. Again, I'm not suggesting you do it. I'm saying if you're going to do it, at least do it right. This guy did not do it right. Unless he was really kidnapped, and maybe the kidnappers are fans of the Rockford Files. Maybe that's what happened. Maybe the Mexican guy just really loved Jim Rockford and memorized every episode and just said, I'm going to incorporate every element that I've seen on TV. 
into this real kidnapping. I use this as a model. Maybe that's what happened. I don't know. We can't say for sure. We'll have to let the FBI do their work. But I have a feeling we're going to find out soon enough that this kidnapping was not a kidnapping. And we can laugh about this, but the real problem with this sort of thing, aside from whatever financial thing he has going on, is that it's a big waste of law enforcement's time. You don't want to waste the police's time investigating a false kidnapping or the FBI's time. They've got other more important cases to investigate. So you're wasting their time here with having them utilizing manpower first to figure out who did this to you when in reality it didn't happen. And second, in having to prove that you faked it and build a case against you. So just don't do it. I mean, whatever the reason is that you want to do it, just don't do it. Now, I will say this. There is nothing illegal about just leaving without telling anyone where you're going. Every adult, except for those who are under some kind of home arrest or whatever, but every adult who is not under any kind of detention has a right to just get up and leave. And you don't have to notify people where you're going. It doesn't matter if it looks suspicious or looks like a kidnapping or looks like you might just be dead. I mean, that's not good to do to those who care about you. It's a very bad thing to do. But it's not illegal. For example, I could walk out the door right now and drive away. Or I could arrange to have someone pick me up and drop me off somewhere. Someone who doesn't know me that will never report who I was. And I could start a new life. And it would be shitty to do, but I could do it, and I couldn't be arrested for it. However, if I were to make false police reports and pretend I was kidnapped, that would be a different story. Then it would be illegal. But if you really must disappear, then just disappear. Just leave. And you can even prepare beforehand. You can get a fake ID, and you can scout out a place to go where people aren't going to recognize you, or you can live a quiet life and do something for a living where you won't be detected. So you can plan it all and then just one day disappear, if you really must. But don't fake a crime. Don't fake a kidnapping. It's not good. So while there's a small possibility this is real, I have to think this really smells like bullshit. But you can let me know if you think otherwise. How much time did that blonde get? Remember the one that was like with her ex-husband but said she was kidnapped by two uh, Hispanic women? Patino or something? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I didn't follow that I think up. she got at least a year in prison, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Yeah, he, could, he, he, could, he could get some real time for this, especially if they put a lot of effort, the FBI gets involved. And you don't want to mess with the feds, because once the feds have built a case against you, you're screwed. They, they win almost everything. So once federal charges are being brought against you, unless you really are 100% innocent... <laughs> It's, it's pretty much curtains for you. You're pretty much going away. So I can't mess around with that sort of thing. So it's a decent chance that George Jansen will end up being the uh, Jesse Smollett of poker in a way. Except uh, no racism angle. But other than that, it has similarities. Yeah, I do see, by the way, the ratings are not particularly good right now. And I think it's because people can't use the damn player. I thought I had the player fixed. I made it worse. That's not good. So I'll have to 
research this next time before we have our next show. Sorry to those of you that have to listen to this in the archives because the live does not work, but that's where you should save the call listen line and use that because that'll always work. Okay, now let's go a little bit back. Not that far back, but to December. And I want to tell you about a major fail that occurred at WSOP Paradise. That's the one in the Bahamas. That really hasn't gotten enough press. I mean, it was talked about some, but it's pretty egregious, and I think it deserved more attention than it got. And I found out about it just after the last show we did, so it's a little bit behind. But anyway, I think this was not covered that much because the main victim of this is Australian, so American poker media just wasn't as interested in the story because it didn't happen in Las Vegas and it didn't happen to an American. But it was pretty bad. So the World Series of Poker Paradise, remember, they had real bracelets they were giving out. They were supposed to be equivalent to the ones you win in the summer. And this one had a main event, just like the Summer World Series had a main event. The field wasn't as large, and it was a $5,000 buy-in instead of 10000 But aside from that, it was considered a main event bracelet. Not quite equivalent to the main event bracelet in the summer, but still a main event bracelet. Now, the prizes were not as big because there simply just were not as many people. But they were still pretty large because it was a World Series main event, and there was a lot of money at stake. So the event was three-handed at this point. So this is not something that happened in the early stages or the middle or even like in the lower cash stages. This was three people left. And at this point, everybody had $900,000 locked up. So this is pretty big, right? So Daniel Nielsen was dealt ace-king, and Stanislav Zagal had king-queen suited. The flop was king-queen five with two hearts. When a nine of diamonds hit the turn, making it two, two hearts, two diamonds, Nielsen put Zagal all in. Now, Zagal obviously snap-called that with top two pair. Wasn't the nuts, but he felt pretty good about it. And the river was a ten of spades, not changing the outcome for either hand. So Zagal's king-queen ended up winning the hand, luckily against Nielsen's ace-king. But what's interesting here, where the fail came in, was that on the turn, Zagal had 38 million in chips remaining. And once the hand was over, 48 million was shipped over to Zagal from Nielsen. That's a huge difference. That's a 10 million chip difference. So when the hand was over, Nielsen was left with 5.2 million chips instead of 15.2 million chips. So he ended up with a third as many chips as he should have had because of that miscount. So nobody figured this out at the time. Nielsen didn't know. These weren't his chips. These were Zagal's chips, but he didn't verify the count. He just believed what the dealer said. 
So he was told that Zagal put in $48 million, and when he lost the hand, he shipped $48 million. Interestingly, the WSOP's on-screen graphics broadcasting the event showed the amount of chips that Nielsen should have had. Because I guess that system had everybody's chips tracked at that point. There's only three people left. So it knew that there's no way Zagal could have won that many chips in that hand. So it showed that Nielsen had 15.2 million and that Zagal had 10 less than he really did on the table. But nobody figured it out. Nobody watching the live stream noticed, or at least nobody that would have gone forward and got anyone's attention. Nielsen busted out with only a gutshot draw that he didn't make. And apparently he would not have done this. He wouldn't have gotten all his chips in the middle with just a gut shot if he had triple the chips. The WSOP said they're investigating the incident, but they said that it's unlikely that they're going to give Nielsen anything for this mistake, even though Nielsen calculated that the chips that he got stiffed out of were worth $116,000 worth of equity. Ty Stewart, who's the WSOP executive director, said the official position in any tournament is that if action was accepted by all parties, there's no recourse once tournament play is concluded. Any corrective action would need to take place while the player remains in the event. We do not, nor does any operator in the world, I'm aware, retroactively award ICM value or any monetary compensation in such situations. So basically he's saying that if you let this happen, if you don't notice this and don't correct it or don't hear about this in time from somebody else. If the event's already over, obviously we can't take money away from the winner, which I agree with, and we're not reaching into our pocket to make it right. Now, the second part I don't like because this was a mistake on the part of the WSOP. Not only did the dealer make the mistake, but they're broadcasting it and showing what should be the correct chips the whole time, or at least for a while, and nobody stops to say, hey, wait a minute, why is this number 10 million off for each of these players? Like, why didn't anyone question this? So there is some negligence involved here. And since Caesars has a lot of money, I think giving Nielsen this 116000 just as an act of goodwill would make them look very good. Now, what they might be worried about is that everyone will show up with their hands out every time they get screwed by some sort of error by the dealer. So the WSOP just wants to set a precedent here that once the event's over, that's it, things are final, they can't change anything. But it's a pretty big mistake. If it sounds familiar, well, in the 2019 World Series of Poker main event, I'm talking about the one in Las Vegas, Nick Marchington went all in, and Daria Sammartino called after the dealer told him that Marchington had $17.2 million, when in reality, Marchington had $22.2 million. He was off by $5 million. So Martino complained about this, not liking the call that he was forced to make at that point, given it was $5 million more. Jack Effel came over and overruled, reversing anything there, making the infamous statement, if you'll call 17, you'll call 22, which isn't true. You can't just say that. It's not like if you call 17.2, you'd call 17.3. This is a pretty large difference. But anyway, the 
call from San Martino was ruled as correct, at least correct from the point that they weren't going to reverse it. This was during the event. Though San Martino did manage to make it all the way to second place and collect $6 million. Nielsen instead here busted in third, which is the worst result at that point when it's three-handed, obviously. It's pretty bad for Daniel Nielsen, but unfortunately they are not going to do anything for him, and this wasn't reported very heavily because he's not American. That's my assumption. Now I'm going to tell you about a weird thing that happened with Hustler Casino, and not Hustler Casino Live, but actually Hustler Casino. And this was reported by none other than Todd Dandruff would tell us. I was the first one to report this anywhere, though others were aware of it even before I was, but nobody seemed to be reporting on it, so I did. And this spawned a discussion on Twitter where I learned more about it, and I wasn't putting it on Twitter to troll Hustler, but I was trying to get information because nobody was giving it to me. Not on purpose. They weren't hiding it from me. Just nobody had it. It was very weird. So let me tell you what happened here. Let's go back to 2002. Yes, actually 2002. I got a box at Hustler Casino, a safe deposit box, because at the time I was playing Limit Hold'em there a lot. I was playing a lot of 2550 Limit Hold'em. So I got a box there so I didn't have to carry cash in that parking lot, which is not in a very good area. I had to give a $100 deposit for the box, but other than that, the box was totally free. It did not have any kind of monthly or yearly rent, so that was nice. And that is the case at these California card rooms, typically, if there's space for you to get a box and if they're willing to give it. But anyway, they gave me the box, and I had it ever since 2002. Now, to give Hustler credit, I went through a long stretch where I didn't play there, and I hardly ever went to my box. (laughs) So... They could have taken away from me a long time ago, and it would have been justified. It would not have complained. And I've lost other boxes in the past for that exact reason, where I just don't play in the place anymore like I used to, and they take it away from me. At Hustler, I had you know, a lot of play in a short time, and then it got less and less, and I just wasn't playing there at all for a number of years. Occasionally, I'd go to the box to take the cash out of it, or put cash in, because I happened to be in the neighborhood. But for the most part, the box was unused. So I was pretty shocked that they didn't take it away from me, but they didn't. So credit to them for that. So let's go more than 21 years into the future, and all of a sudden I am over 50 years old, whereas I had just turned 30 at the time that I got the box. Now I'm over 50. In fact, I'm approaching 52. And I get a letter in the mail. And fortunately, I updated my address with Hustler last year. They still had a very old address, but when I went there last year, I realized that and I had them update my address. I actually had gone to play at Hustler more in the past year or so, so that actually justified me still having the box, but they hadn't been trying to close it, so I probably would have still had it even if I hadn't been using it in the past year. But I did update my address, which is fortunate because I got a letter from them that was pretty important. The letter was dated November 15th, 2023. You can see this letter as I posted a copy of it in the Poker Community Discussion subforum. And the thread is called Hustler Closing All Safe Deposit Boxes. 
blah, blah, blah. You'll find it pretty easily. So I posted an actual picture of this letter. It says, 11-15-23, Todd would tell us. And by the way, that's not when I received the letter, but that's what it stated. It says, re-casino security boxes, parentheses, safe deposit boxes. Dear sir or madam, hmm, I guess they are not sure of my gender. They don't know my pronouns. They don't know if I'm he, him, or they, them, or zizim, or she, her. They, they don't know. I look like a sir, but maybe I'm not a sir. So they don't want to assume my gender. Dear sir or madam, due to a compliance-related policy change, the casino will be closing all security boxes as of 12-31-23. To retrieve your box contents... Come into the casino and access your box before 12-31-23. Failure to come in and retrieve your security box contents will result in the security box's contents being remitted to the appropriate state jurisdiction as unclaimed property. Uh-oh, you don't want that. If the contents are turned over to the state, you will have to contact the California State Controller's Office directly to claim your property. Please contact us if you're unable to come into the casino before 12-31-23. And then they gave the contact info. So I'm getting this letter in like mid to late December. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why is it dated November 15th? Is it possible the post office messed up and just didn't deliver it to me all this time? Well, no. I looked at the envelope, which I also posted a picture of. And you'll see that they printed postage on December 11th, 23. And it looks like this was probably printed by the Hustler. So they had one of these postage machines that can print their own postage. So they didn't even print the postage on it till 12-11-23. And then the postmark was 12-13-23. So it looks like they didn't actually mail it till the 13th. They printed the postage on it on the 11th and mailed on the 13th, almost a full month after the letter was dated. Why? I don't know. So this is highly inconvenient for me. I was away from home for a while. And in December, I was just not going to have time to get down there. But I did not want my box's contents, which was cash, becoming unclaimed property. Because that's a big pain to claim. And also, you have to count on everybody who is taking in the unclaimed property that they are doing it honestly and not stealing your cash. So how do I know that someone in the government won't steal it or someone at Hustler drilling open my box won't steal it? Whatever it was, I did not want to trust that. So I definitely had to get down there. Even though the envelope addressed to me, and you can see this too in the thread, was not to Todd would tell us, but to Tood would tell us. <laughs> Reminds me of when I was first registered to vote, I was 18 years old. I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. And they had a voter registration drive on campus where a number of adults came down and set up tables. And during the lunch period, you could have them register you if you were old enough to be registered to vote, which I was. And this would make you eligible to vote in the June primary, which that year for me was 1990 when I was 18. So I said, okay, sure. This is convenient. This is easy. Yeah, I want to vote this year. I'm finally 18. So I registered. Well, 
I wasn't thrilled to see who was doing the registration. They must have recruited these volunteers from retirement homes because everybody was ancient. I don't just mean old or old compared to an 18-year-old. I mean, they were super old. They had to all be like over 85. And the woman I got, she not only looked over 85, she acted over 85. She was really, really slow and confused. And, you know, I'm not putting her down for that. I mean, that happened to my own grandmother, who I loved very much. But the bottom line is, you know, some people who are very elderly are also very senile. And this woman was. <laughs> she shouldn't have had this job. So she was very, very confused in the whole process. I had to, like, I had to help her with it, even though I'm the kid here being registered for the first time. So we get through it. It was an ordeal, but I got through it. I was polite to her. You know, I understood why this was happening. It wasn't because she wasn't paying attention. It's just she was very senile. So then I get my registration in the mail, and it is registered to Rod Wittellis. <laughs> and it's Rod with two Ds. It's not even just R-O-D. R-O-D would be better. At least there's guys actually named Rod, R-O-D. But how many Rods do you know with two Ds? <laughs> That's what I was registered as, was Rod Wittellis. So then I attempted to correct it to be Todd Wittellis, and somehow the registrar didn't do it properly, and they didn't unregister Rod, so every election for quite some time I was getting two sample ballots for both Todd Wittellis and Rod Wittellis. <laughs> And when I went to go vote, Rod Wittellis was right there on the voter rolls, and he just never showed up to vote. I guess I could have voted twice, but I didn't. I voted only as Todd. Rod never voted. Eventually, I got them to remove Rod. Like, years later, I got the registrar to get rid of it. But Tude Wittellis, he reminds me of Rod Wittellis. The weirdest misnamed letter I ever got in my life wasn't Rod Wittellis, though. I think I was like 16 at the time. I wasn't even an adult yet. It was like in the late 80s. I got a letter for Todd Wittellis Gugma. <laughs> Gugma? Where would they get Gugma? G-U-G-M-A. I still remember that. It was so weird, Todd Wittellis Gugma. And my mom got it because you know, she's getting the mail every day and then giving to me what comes for me. She, she comes to me and says, uh, do you know what Todd would tell us Gugma? <laughs> I said, what? And we looked at this. We just thought it was so funny, the Gugma. It's like a funny sounding name. So of all things, I'm Todd would tell us Gugma. I guess Wittellis is my middle name and Gugma is my last name. It wasn't Wittellis hyphen Gugma. It was just Todd would tell us Gugma. It's from some business. So I, I just ignored it, but I, I wondered how they got Todd would tell us Gugma. There must have been like some database error that merged two names. But I wonder if there really was a Todd Gugma. Now, in honor of that, something I signed up for online many, many years later, I signed up as Todd Gugma. So going back to Hustler here and the letter to Tude Wittellis, this is a big pain in the ass for me. I, I felt I had to get down there before December 31st, or otherwise I was going to have to go through the whole unclaimed property nightmare. So I finally got down there just a few days before December 31st, I think it was on the 28th, and I withdrew the contents of my box, and then 
there was a 50-100 limit hold'em game going. So I said, oh, you know, I might as well sit down in it. So I sat down in the game. I just got my ass beat. I, I just got stomped on in that game. And it's funny because I've played that game a number of times, and I've always done very well in it. And this time I just got stomped on. It's like all my bad luck potentially in that game waited for that one session. So if I just hadn't been forced down to get my box, I would not have lost that money, which is frustrating. I know I could have gone the other way. I just I just ran super bad. It, it went shorthanded. I ran even worse. And there was one guy there that was definitely not a very good player. Let me just say that. And he was just getting insanely lucky. And the very final hand of the game before it broke was against him. And I had trips, and I check-raised the turn, and he had a gut shot, and he, of course, made the gut shot on the river. So that was nice. The final hand. So anyway, that was a lovely day. It was even lovelier when I found out that I actually didn't have to come that day. Or any time at the end of December. So I posted on Twitter about this whole thing. And not surprisingly, especially because I tagged Hustler Casino LA, which is their Twitter account, the cardroom manager, Sean Yapel, responded and explained some details about this. Now, I did try to find out the details. I tried to call up there and ask them, why are these boxes being closed? Is it everybody's box or just mine? They told me it's everybody's. I said, are you sure? They said, yes. The letter made it seem like that, too. It didn't say mine. It said they're closing all of them, so I, that made sense. Then I said, well, why? And nobody could explain it. One person said, oh, I, I heard they want to do something else with the space. So that doesn't make any sense, because that's like in the cashier area. It's not like they could, they could put extra poker tables there. Nobody could answer me. When I was physically down there closing the box, nobody could tell me. I asked the floor men. I asked the cashiers. I asked everybody I could find there who looked like they might be knowledgeable. They couldn't tell me. I also called up the number that was on the paper that was mailed to me. The person there could not tell me. No, nobody knew. They weren't saying we won't tell you. They were saying we don't know. <laughs> nobody knew. But Sean Yapel knew because he is the card room manager. Now, when I tweeted about it, I also learned something else, not from Sean Yapel, but from another person on Twitter. I learned that this notice was massively insufficient because they did not give me enough time to get down there. Indeed, California gambling law requires a six-month notice period before the box can be drilled open and given to unclaimed property. This wasn't even close. This wasn't even one month. They dated it over a month away, but they actually mailed it in mid-December telling me to be down there by the end of December. So I didn't have to come that day. And by the way, I wouldn't have come that day because it wasn't convenient for me. I didn't feel like it. I was tired. Maybe that's why I didn't do all that well in the poker game. I also just ran really bad. Now, no one forced me to play, but it's just kind of annoying. But here's what it says. California Gambling Law, Section 1514B. If a business association has in its record an address for an apparent owner of the contents of or the proceeds of sale or the contents of a safe deposit box or other safekeeping repository described in subdivision A, the business association shall make reasonable efforts to notify the owner by mail or if the owner has consented to electronic notice electronically that the owner's contents or the proceeds of the sale of the contents will 
a sheet to the state pursuant to the section, and here's the important part, the business association shall give notice not less than six months and not more than 12 months before the contents or the proceeds of the sale of the contents become reportable to the controller in accordance with this chapter. So basically, they had to notify me between six and 12 months in advance of closing my box. And they didn't. They didn't even do it six weeks in advance. What's also weird is this exact same letter, except not addressed to anyone in particular, was there posted in the room with the safe deposit boxes, except it said that you had to abandon the boxes by 9.30.23. That's way off. I mean, that's three months beforehand. And that wasn't true because my box was still there. So they're all over the place with this. And I, I still don't have an answer as to why that was going on. But I know that they were not legally allowed to drill open my box for six months after notifying me. Sean Yapel wrote, notices began to go out in October. We will contact anyone who has not closed their box after 1231. New boxes haven't been issued in over a year. Most of the LA clubs have already ended or planned to end this service. Player banks are offered. A player bank is where you deposit money at the casino and you just withdraw from it using things like checks. You can thank FinCEN for anti-money laundering AML enhancements. So then a person who goes by Big Slick Energy, who's Chaos Agent 22 on Twitter, wrote, why haven't all casinos done this if it's a FinCEN AML thing? That's a good question. If this is really because of tighter regulations, why hasn't every LA card room done this? So Sean Yapel wrote all about risk tolerance. So then Big Slick Energy asked, I am curious how the AML policy, that is anti-money laundering, could be risk-tolerance-based since there is nothing AML-averse in having deposit boxes. Player-to-player cash transactions, sure, but this doesn't jive. That said, I can see it being an issue if the casino is found to have violated AML policies, and this is part of the enhanced oversight. Sean Aples just said back, how about we don't want to have any AML issues? Big Slick Energy says back, that's a good goal for sure, but I'm still not sure how the deposit box creates one. Sean Yapel says, we wouldn't have stopped the service if it wasn't an issue. So I said back, I believe that AML regulations were the issue. I'm just curious why Commerce is still offering boxes. Are you saying that they're just taking a big risk that a hustler isn't willing to take? And Sean Yapel said, Commerce is the last holdout, and yes. So that's the situation, and I believe it. Apparently, the federal government updated their anti-money laundering requirements which then triggered California to do the same. And this created some kind of increased regulatory risk, I don't know if it's fines or whatever, upon card rooms offering the safe deposit boxes. So Hustler decided they don't want to take the risk. They don't want to mess something up as far as these stricter regulations and then be subject to a gigantic fine. So they said, F it, we're going to close them. And they're claiming that every single LA area card room has decided to do the same thing except for commerce. It's possible commerce will eventually do the same thing as well. Now, I don't understand why Hustler had this weirdness regarding the notification. Why in the room it says 9-30-23, why they have the letter dated 11-15, but they don't actually mail it till December 13th, and why I was given an illegally short deadline to get my stuff out when it was actually six months. So that was unexplained. I don't know why and how that happened. 
the April also said that these notices have been going out since October, but I don't know why they don't just hammer them out in one batch. Why would they be sending one after another? Possibly these were sent out manually in a way, and that would explain that Tood would tell us instead of Todd would tell us, because I'm definitely in the system as Todd would tell us, so I don't know why Tood was involved here. And just in case you think I'm wrong, you'll see that the letter was to Todd would tell us, but the envelope was addressed to Tood would tell us. So maybe they are generating these manually somehow, and it's just taking a while. Very weird. But I do believe them that this was something due to changing regulations. So that kind of sucks. You may wonder, why don't I just use the damn player bank? Why am I obsessed with safe deposit boxes? Because the player bank's a pain in the ass. You have to write this check, and then they have to take the money out, and it's just so much easier to go to your box and pull whatever money out that you think you're going to need during the session. If worst comes to worst, you go there a second time during the session and pull out more money, but you're saying, I just pull out what I think I'm going to need, and then you play, and then you put it back in, and then that's that. There's no paperwork, there's no bullshit. It's just very easy. The player bank becomes a pain in the ass. So who wants to do this? But they did have those thefts at the Bellagio, right, Trough? Maybe that um, has something to do with it. Well, I guess it's this other thing. But yeah, this is money laundering. I was wondering if it could be something like that, but he's insisting it's regulations related to money laundering. And I know there's been a lot of issues with money laundering at the L.A. rooms. Not really the Hustler, but the bike has had a lot of problems with this. Did you see my chat? Let me take a look to, here. I tried to call the list. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's it's been confirmed now in several ways that I messed up the radio page pretty badly. Something I thought worked, because the one guy who was complaining it wasn't working before. like, And I noticed it sometimes wasn't working for me either, so I believed him. And I, I do believe him. I still believe the guy. But, like, I thought it was a problem that a lot of people were having. So I fixed it. So I thought. And now I broke it for a lot more people. So even though it works for me and this guy now, it does not work for a lot of other people. And I guess the call to listen line cannot even work because uh, I'll tell you the way the call to listen line works is the call to listen line basically just connects to the stream the same way that you would connect to it on the radio page. The, the call to listen line in a way goes to the radio page and listens itself and then broadcasts it over the phone. So if it can't connect, then it just doesn't work. So I guess this whole show, the call to listen line wasn't working either. That's lovely. So I'm going to have to go fix this later on. I'll, I'll get to it pretty soon because it's bothering me that it's not working like this. I, I haven't figured out what the problem is, but I will uh, attempt to figure it out. Maybe I'll use you as a test case, Trader Ruski, when I think I have it fixed, that you can try it and tell me if you're hearing anything. But obviously it won't be during the show. There's only so much I can do here. I want to talk about the Sean Perry situation. We've talked about him before. Most notably, he was accused of scamming Daniel Coleman for over a million dollars through a Daily Fantasy sports contest, and that was never resolved. It seemed to me that he was probably guilty. There wasn't a full smoking gun proof, but it wasn't looking very good, and he would never issue any kind of direct response to it. He wouldn't issue any response to it. He also didn't have a good reputation in poker. A lot of people said he was shady. A lot of people said he was a liar. A lot of people said that he was just a complete douchebag and unpleasant to have at the table. 
No one ever had anything good to say about Sean Perry, who, by the way, is a young guy. He's like, I think, mid to late 20s. He is the son of poker player Ralph Perry, who was actually at the final table of the event I won at the World Series in 05. And Mary Perry, M-E-R-R-I, she is a realtor in Vegas who is seemingly friending anyone in poker and then trying to pitch her services, not directly to them, but she'd just friend anybody in poker she could find on Facebook and then hope you would see her pitches about being your realtor. She tried to friend me several times. I never accepted. So that is their son, Sean Perry, and he's now playing you know, very high-stakes tournaments. And sometimes he'll cash them and cash very big. I don't know if he's up or down because while he's had some very large caches, he also is entering huge buy-in events. He has cashed a total of $6.8 million. And this is in a relatively short time. This is since 2017. And he really ramped it up starting in around late 2017, 2018. Basically, nobody likes him. The most recent news we covered about Sean Perry on the show was when Jason Mercier posted a weird semi-endorsement of him saying that Perry had paid back the money that he owed and that this sets a good example that a lot of people in poker just don't ever pay back when they owe money, and Sean has, so we need to recognize that. A very weird message that he probably had to post in order to get paid back by Sean. That's what people guessed. And then this pissed off Daniel Coleman, who's like, yeah, I haven't been paid back. I haven't been paid anything. And I got scammed for over a million bucks. And there's plenty of other people who haven't been paid back. And Mercier ended up looking kind of bad in that whole thing. That was the last we talked about Sean Perry. But Sean Perry entered the Survivor Contest at Circa, the same one that I entered along with some people from Poker Fraud Alert. And Sean had success in it he made it all the way down to the final nine players. And this is a prize pool of $9.3 million, winner take all. Now, because the prize is so large, and because there's so much variance, typically people will make some kind of deal towards the end. So everybody will get some kind of guaranteed fairly big money, and then play for the rest of the end, or in some cases just completely chop it and end the contest. Now, you can have an edge over the remaining players just from which teams you have left to pick. Remember, a survivor contest in the NFL works in that you pick one team each week to win. If they win, then you move on. If the team loses, then you're out of the contest. There's no point spread. It's just whether they win or lose. You can buy up to 10 tickets so you can use each ticket as like a separate entrance. And you cannot use the same team twice. So that's where a lot of the strategy comes in, in that you can't just always pick the best team every week. You have to spread it around because with uh, 20 picks you have to make, you're going to end up having to pick some below average teams as well. So you have to do it based upon matchups and what's coming up. You have to keep an eye on the whole thing. You also have to keep an eye on What's happening injury-wise to NFL teams where a good team can quickly become a mediocre or bad team from someone getting injured or vice versa. 
It's a lot to watch for when you're doing this contest. So it's all 18 weeks of the NFL, plus additional picks for Thanksgiving and Christmas for a total of 20 picks you have to do on 20 different teams. We entered with three entries. The first two lost quickly. The third one made it all the way to week 10, and we almost got past week 10. I mean, it was the closest of close games. And then we were just totally right on the fence of who we were going to pick that week anyway, and we almost picked a different team, which ended up winning. And then the way we had planned to pick going forward, the next several weeks also would have been winners for us. So we could have gotten very far in this as well, had that just fallen a bit differently, or had we picked the other way, as or not the other way, but the other team we were considering that week 10. But yeah, that's the way it went, and we lost. So Sean Perry did not lose. One of his tickets did make it to the final, I guess, 10, not final nine. There's nine opponents left. And at that point, the other nine people were open to a deal where each ticket would get paid $400,000. And by the way, this is allowed by Circa. Circa had no issue with these deals being made. So the other nine people were for this deal where everybody would get a minimum of 400000 and then they would play to the end, and the ultimate winner would get the remaining $5.3 million. However, this deal never happened because Sean Perry refused. On December 18th, he tweeted, When I win the $9.3 million from the Circa Survivor, I'm requesting an all-cash payout. Get the wheelbarrow apostrophe S ready. Hashtag I'm not shopping. I like wheelbarrow apostrophe S. <laughs> Why do people make that mistake? Why is it always like uneducated people who make that mistake? And I'm not trying to talk down about those who aren't educated. It just seems like the trashy, uneducated people I run into just always make that mistake with the apostrophe S where it shouldn't be. Why? Like, what is it? What What is it that makes you want to do that? Because like when I was in first grade, I didn't make that mistake. I'm not kidding. I, I never had that desire to do that. I never thought that was correct. So I'm not speaking from the standpoint of a college graduate today in my 50s. I'm talking about like when I was a little kid, I knew not to do that. My son has never done that. He's never made that mistake. I told him about that apostrophe S thing, which Christopher Mitchell does too. And he's like, why would people do that? I go, I don't know. <laughs> I've never done that. It's so weird. So he, he wanted them to get the wheelbarrow apostrophe S ready. Then he posted a picture of him picking up a lot of cash at some casino and wrote, I'm going to need a bigger suitcase this year. Hashtag, I'm not shopping. That was on December 22nd. The Las Vegas Review Journal actually did an article on Sean Perry and his refusal to do any kind of deal. He said in the article, why would I shop when I have an edge? If you do 400K each, any money I take out of the prize pool is money I'm in. So in theory, I'm losing because I have an edge. I believe I have the best team left. I'm confident in my ability. This is what I do. I'm a big-time crusher. I've been the biggest winner in sports for the longest time. So not only did he feel that he had the best remaining picks here, the best teams remaining that he hadn't used yet, but also he just felt he was the best sports handicapper anyway of the remainder of that field. So that particular week, he had the Denver Broncos at home against the lowly New England Patriots. The Broncos were minus seven, but the Patriots ended up winning, 
and Sean Perry was out. So his refusal to chop cost him $400,000. Five others also had the Broncos, so that knocked the contest all the way down to four people. Sean Perry tweeted on December 24th, definitely got my money's worth. Good luck to the remaining four. You guys can now chop. I don't know if they did, but that's what he tweeted. Now, when he said he got his money's worth, this might mean that he hedged by betting a lot of money on the Patriots, so he was guaranteed money either way. Maybe that was his strategy. Is rather than splitting something, he could guarantee himself money by simply betting against his own picks, knowing that if he won, that his equity would go up, up, up. So it's very possible that he meant that he did better than winning 400 k anyway. Josh Arier, in light of all this talk about Perry, came forward with a negative story about Perry in the past. He posted this on Christmas Day. PSA, meaning public service announcement, to anyone thinking of doing business with a self-proclaimed, quote, best sports better in the world. Number one, I've heard nothing but bad slash negative things about him from people that would know. Number two, about five years ago, Josh Ledeen's called me to purchase a large amount of Powerball tickets for a group of poker players. Sean was part of that group. The amount ended up being about 40K. I bought the tickets and took a bunch of pictures. Sean accused me of voiding the sales and basically screwing the group. Josh Ledeen's does not know me too well. I had a friend call him and vouch for me that I was honest and would never do that. After some back and forth, Sean offered to bet, I don't remember if it was 10 or 20K, that I didn't purchase the correct amount of tickets. We obviously accepted the wager, but Sean disappeared and basically backed out. More of the stories that I believe he has larceny in his heart, and he must if he thinks that's a possibility. That, that is, that Arya would do such a thing. I've never heard anything good about the guy. Maybe he's changed. <laughs> Weird story that Sean was accusing Arya of not really buying the tickets that he claimed he would buy, and just pocketing the money. So, is it reasonable that Perry refused to chop? Let, let's forget all the bravado and the posturing that he's the best sports better in the world, blah, blah, blah. I, mean, I have no idea where this guy gets his money. And I have a feeling he's not even really be- beating sports. He's probably just betting big. But is it possible he did do the right thing by refusing to chop? And the answer is, if he really felt that he had a substantially better group of teams to pick from than the other people had, which maybe he did, I didn't look at all the teams, that it is true that an even chop at that point is negative for him, especially since he can hedge, and especially because since he is a high-limit sports better, at the very least we know that. We don't know if he wins or loses, but at the very least he does bet high limits. I will tell you that they typically won't give you high limits at sports books unless you are a loser. So if you're crushing them, and you keep crushing them, and you seem like you're a sharp better, they will cut you off very fast. Sportsbooks often operate on an independent budget from the casino. Sometimes they're not even part of the casino. But they are just very conscious about people who are putting in big action, because it takes a long time to make that money back if a whale ends up beating you, if you're a book. So the way books really make money is by keeping their risk low, and just making money on volume through the VIG they charge. They don't want to take too many huge bets because there's too much variance in that for them. So when they do take huge bets, they tend to only want to do it from someone they know is going to be a long and probably medium-term loser. But he does have high limits, it seems. So this would be a guy who could easily get money down, especially on NFL games where there's a lot of action, 
So maybe he did calculate that it just didn't make any sense when he can lock up money anyway by just betting against his own pick. And by the way, had we gotten deep, that's what we would have started doing. So I'm not criticizing betting against your own pick. That's what we would have done once we got deep there so we're not playing for such huge money. So I think there's a good chance that's what he did. And also it just made for a good story that he could push the narrative that he's the greatest sports better and he doesn't need to chop and he's so rich he doesn't need the money. So 400k means nothing to him. So I think there was a practical reason to the no chopping. It's also possible he was just so much in debt to people that he needed to win the contest outright in order to get out of that debt. So the 400k might not mean anything to him, honestly. Now we're going to talk about someone who made the national news, who is a poker player, but not the way he was portrayed in the media. See, it's unfortunate for our community that whenever someone does something bad and they have some kind of poker results, and if they don't really have a regular job, or if they just have publicly identified themselves more for their poker play, that they are described as a poker pro. So we have enough bad actors in our community anyway. What we don't need are people who really aren't in the community that are blamed as part of being in poker when they're really not. But that appears to have happened here. So this really could have been something awful. And fortunately, it didn't harm anybody. It easily could have, but it didn't. But we almost had another Stephen Paddock. And the only reason you may not have heard about this is because nobody was injured or killed. A 49-year-old named John Letskis was arrested after shooting off of his balcony. When I say his, it was a place that he was either staying at or renting. It was in the MGM Signature Condos Complex in Las Vegas. But someone reported that there was a man firing a gun off of a balcony. And that's indeed what he was doing. Apparently, this person named John Letzkus, L-E-T-Z-K-U-S, was 49 years old, was seen going onto the balcony of his room and just firing his gun in the air over and over and over again. He also broke windows in his own place. I guess he was firing through them or whatever, but he was mainly firing off the balcony. He also flooded the room. He turned on the bathroom tap. I don't know if it was the bathtub or just the bathroom sink and probably clogged the drain because the room was flooded and it seemed to be intentional. He had also locked a dog in the bathroom, though I believe the dog was not harmed. They figured out who it was by finding a pill bottle in the bathroom that belonged to John Letzkus. And they had seen that he checked into the MGM signature. So I guess it was just like a hotel room for him, not really a rental, on December 30th, and that he checked in with a dog. At first he was at large and they couldn't find him, but eventually a man 
matching his appearance that had been distributed was spotted in a pizzeria in the MGM Grand, and he was arrested. The arrest occurred without incident, so apparently he didn't try to fire at police or fight them or anything. I don't know if they surprised him there. I don't know exactly the manner of which they arrested him. They may have just kind of come behind him and grabbed him, especially knowing that he was armed. Leskis apparently admitted to police that he did do the firing off the balcony. He said that he did it because he was very, very angry regarding his recent divorce. Apparently, he was screaming and crying with a red face with bulging veins and a clenched fist. He said that he used his Glock 17, which he bought in Oregon, which is where he was originally from. He originally bought it for self-protection. He was an expert with guns, claimed he wouldn't hurt anyone, and said he's more of a danger to himself than anyone else. He didn't explain how he could be sure that these shots fired from the balcony wouldn't accidentally hit someone. They didn't, but they could have. He fired off like 70 shots. So he wasn't anywhere nearly as bad as Stephen Paddock, who premeditated actually trying to kill people and kill as many as possible with high-powered weaponry from a Mandalay Bay room that was facing a music festival. Here this guy just went on the balcony just started firing off his gun in the air, but it could easily land on somebody. So just because he didn't hit anybody doesn't mean that he couldn't have hit anybody. So he definitely didn't care too much about what he was doing. However, it seemed that he was not really in a sane state of mind. He said that he came to Las Vegas to get away from a sheriff who was trying to serve him. I'm not sure if that's related to the divorce. Then he said that he was afraid that hotel security was actually someone who was hired by his ex-wife to kill him. And he was afraid he would be thrown off the balcony by that person. He said he was trying to fire off shots from the balcony to get someone's attention to help him. He was afraid if he didn't do that, that this uh, person hired by his ex was going to come in and throw him off. He also claimed that he saw cats in suits with machine guns walking the hallways he also saw people coming through the heating vents to get him. I don't know if he was doing drugs or if he just had some kind of major mental issue. There is video of him acting really erratically prior to that. For example, there's a video of him running down a hall and just ramming himself into a stairwell door. And also dropping some rounds of ammunition in the process. He was also seen sprinting down the hallway at one point, basically naked. He had socks and shoes on, but nothing else. And then somehow he comes back into the video a short time later, fully clothed again. <laughs> he also was seen leaving a suitcase in a stairwell for some reason. And then he was going back and forth between his room and somewhere else a number of times. And then eventually crossed the skywalk to MGM Grand, at which point he was arrested. Apparently, his antics in the room cost $100,000 to fix, or it will cost $100,000 to fix, probably mostly from the water damage. There was also a restraining order out of San Diego that prevented him from having a gun. I'm not sure if it was filed by his wife. He is facing 70-plus charges for firing a gun inside a building. 
He's also going to face a felony charge for possessing a firearm, since he cannot do that as a result of the restraining order. And he is charged with two felony counts of property damage. By the way, while it was justified in this case, for sure, California does have something which I think should be unconstitutional regarding restraining orders. And that is, if somebody asks for a temporary restraining order against you, which they can get with very little evidence. A permanent restraining order is tougher to get. That's one that actually goes on your record and lasts usually for three years. So there, something has to be shown that you're being a consistent nuisance or danger to that person. But a temporary restraining order, you just have to basically go in and state that you are fearful of this person and the person's not there to defend themselves. So basically, the temporary restraining order is issued just to stop you from harassing that person, if you are doing it, until it's heard in court. Now, the good news is it doesn't go on your record. The bad news is that usually it requires in California that you give up your firearms. So any random psycho can file a restraining order against you, and then you're supposed to turn in your firearms, not permanently, they, you know, they will hold them for you, but you have to give up your guns in most cases, when these are filed, even if your case hasn't been heard. Now, this would make sense if there is a real threat of danger, but they'll give this out as far as the no guns order very frivolously. Like, most courts will just do it, even if there's nothing having to do with an element of violence. So, that's very stupid, and it should be a Second Amendment violation. Really, you shouldn't lose the right to have firearms unless there is substantial evidence that you will be a danger to yourself or others. And someone just coming in and making unsubstantiated claims about you, especially ones that don't involve any violence, you shouldn't lose your guns until that is adjudicated. I think that's insane, but that's just one of many dumb things about California. Now here, I don't know what the restraining order was for or who got it against him, but Obviously, this guy should not have a gun, because look what he did with it. I think someone who is seemingly insane, it would make sense to take away their guns. Again, for a situation like this. But if it's just like a dispute between two people, where one is alleging that the other is stalking them or whatever, and there's no violence involved, it's just kind of like nuisance stalking, then there should not be a requirement to give up your firearm, at least not until the matter's heard in court, and the judge can make their best decision on it. That's something most people don't know. I don't know how many other states do this, and California didn't used to do this, but they do it now. John Letzkis's Hendon mob does not show very much as far as tournament results. He has just $14,807 in tournament caches. The biggest cash he's ever had was over 10 years ago at a $1,650 no-limit event at the L.A. Poker Open in L.A. And the second biggest cash was in 2023, a $140.08 event in Lincoln City, where he finished first. But all in all, over his 10 and a half years of playing poker, at least tournament poker, 
he's cashed a whopping 14,807 total. To show you how insignificant that is, there are 121,655 players who have cashed more than him lifetime in tournaments. <laughs> so, he's not a poker pro, obviously. This is over a period of 10 and a half years. So on the all-time money list, he's 121,656th. <laughs> I'm one of those people, by the way, as you might guess. In case you're wondering where I am in all-time money list, and remember, I'm not really a tournament player. I only basically play at the World Series. But in case you're still wondering where I am on that list, I am 2,621st, and I have just a bit over a million dollars in cashes, one million eighteen thousand one forty seven. And there's still twenty six hundred twenty people who've cashed more than me, which is crazy. You have twenty six twenty people who've cashed one point oh one eight one four eight or more. Wow. A lot of people cashing in poker, I guess. So I guess I can say I'm the two thousand six hundred twenty first best poker player in the world, which is better than what John Letskis can say that he's the 121,656th best poker player in the world. So they shouldn't really be calling him a poker pro, but some of these articles I've been reading about him describe him as a poker pro who was shooting off his balcony. And it, it just makes all poker players look bad. It makes us all look like we're potential psychos. But yeah, a guy cashing less than 15,000 in well over 10 years should not be considered a poker pro. Just a guy who played poker, who was kind of crazy. Fortunately, nobody was hurt. Speaking of crazy people, a man in a Pennsylvania casino got himself into a bit of a mess when he thrashed an elevator after losing in a casino and then got stuck. This man, who was not named but was 45 years old, was at the Hollywood Casino in Grantville, Pennsylvania. So I guess he was really pissed off that he had lost a lot of money. And he was in the elevator. I'm not sure if he was going up to a room or what, but he was in the elevator. And he started kicking the elevator's inside door. There are two doors in elevators. You may not realize this, but there's two doors. There's one that's an inside door. The other one's an outside door. The outside door does not move. The outside door is stationary and will open when the elevator gets there. That's why the door is still closed when the elevator is not on your floor. When the elevator comes to the floor you're on and you've called it, or if somebody else is traveling to that floor, then both the inside and the outside door will open, and then they will both close when the elevator is going to move again. The inside door is there to protect people from touching the moving wall because of course when the elevator is moving then the wall on the outside of it you'll be moving up and it can be dangerous to put your hand there you know someone could easily get caught or a lot of bad things could happen so it's very necessary to have both an outside door to prevent people from falling into the shaft and an inside door to prevent people from injuring themselves in the elevator however Something you especially may not know is that if the inside door is damaged, then the elevator sometimes won't operate. And that's what happened here. So after the guy smashed the inside door, it 
stopped operating and it just froze. So it said in the report, an investigation revealed that the guest was angry as a result of betting losses and repeatedly kicked the elevator's inside door, critically disabling the elevator and entrapping him just between casino floors. I'm not sure if this is a safety feature or if it just causes the whole elevator to mess up and shut down. But that's what happened. And he had to be rescued out of the elevator. He didn't mean to trap himself in there, obviously, but he was just kicking, kicking, kicking the door, and then all of a sudden the elevator stops working. I'd love to hear the call he made from the emergency phone in the elevator. Oh, yeah, hello, yeah, I was kicking the door a whole lot of times, and now the elevator's not moving. Can you come get me? Sorry about breaking your door, but I'm pissed off. I lost money here. Now I'm stuck, so can you come get me? I promise I won't kick the door anymore, and I won't kick anybody coming to rescue me. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, can you send someone? Please? Don't just leave me here. I have to go to the bathroom. Don't want to do it in the elevator. <laughs> this happened on December 9th. And I don't know if they've fixed the elevator yet. I once had an incident with the inside door. Well, actually, more than once. I've had incidents before the inside door is malfunctioning. And I have been able to get the elevator moving again utilizing the inside door in some way. In the 90s, I got trapped in a small elevator in an apartment building, and I sat there ringing the alarm. It had no phone or anything, so I, and I had my cell phone had no reception in there. I did have a cell phone. It was like late 90s, but it had no reception. I'm ringing, ringing, ringing the alarm. There's nobody coming. I'm shouting, shouting. Nobody's coming. And you know, I had a little bit of a panic come over me that I'm going to be stuck in here for God knows how long. So then I got a hold of myself and said, okay, let me try to experiment with this and see if I can get it moving. So I'm just like starting to bang around with the buttons there. And one of the buttons made the door like start to open a little bit and then stop. And I was not stuck between floors, actually stuck on a floor. The door just closed and then would not move. The elevator didn't move and I could not open the door again. But one of the buttons, I, I don't think it was door open, but one of the buttons made the inside door jolt a little bit, but then we'd still be stuck. So I came to the conclusion that the inside door was not making proper contact and basically not signaling the system that it's ready to move. So it got stuck kind of in like a no man's land where the door was actually closed and locked, but... The system didn't know that, so it was just sitting there. It was waiting for that signal that contact had been made by the door closing. So I thought to myself, hey, you know what? What if I just force the door closed as hard as I can, even though it is closed? What if I close it even harder? What if I even push it open a little bit and back closed? Maybe I can have it make contact and it'll move. So I did that, and that's exactly what happened. It worked. So it moved. I quickly hit the button for the next floor down. It opened. I was very happy to be out of there. And then what I did is I pulled the stop button, which didn't make an alarm go on. It would just stop the elevator. So I pulled the stop button. And just to make sure nobody would come in and just unstop it, I went and got a paper and some tape. I forgot where I got it. But I got paper and some tape and wrote out of order and stuck it up in the elevator. So I made it clear that nobody else would go in there because the same thing would happen to them and they wouldn't figure it out. And then I later explained to the manager of that building 
what happened and how to instruct tenants to get out of it. More recently, I had an incident at the Rio. I believe it was in 2019. It was 19 or 21, one of those two years. But I had an incident at the Rio where it was very crowded on a break from the World Series, and I tried to go up to my room. We're just packed in there like sardines, and the door closes, and the same thing, it just doesn't move. And then I tried the contact thing that I did back in the 90s, and it didn't work. So everyone's kind of just sitting there. They don't know what to do. And I'm like, no fucking way am I going to be stuck here with just wall-to-wall people stuck for you know who knows how long. So I decided to take the matter into my own hands. I said, guys, hang on here. <laughs> Step back. And like Superman, I grabbed each side of the door and forced it open. I didn't break anything, but I just forced it open. <laughs> I did. I just put a lot of strength into it, and I forced the door open. We all walked out. Damn inside doors. Finally, I want to tell you some about my visit to Fountain Blue, because I was in Las Vegas for New Year's. For the first time in five years, I was in Vegas for New Year's. Now, I didn't stay at the Fountain Blue, but the Fountain Blue, as you've probably heard in recent PFA radio programs, or maybe saw in the news, is the newest strip hotel to open in Las Vegas. It is a sort of brand new hotel in that it's never been opened before, but it has been under construction for 17 years. It began in 07, and it was supposed to be completed in 08 or 09, and then the financial crash of 08 occurred, and funding dried up and it was never finished and it sat and sat and sat like an eyesore it was never wrecked and they were paying people to go in there and run the water and everything to kind of keep the thing operational and people were wondering if it would ever be fixed and ever be completed or if this was just going to sit there unfinished forever or if they're going to wreck it it went through various owners including carl icon And finally, it was completed. It was just completed in December of 2023. This is a hotel casino that was started in 2007. It also went through various names. At one point, it was going to be called The Drew. And they ended up settling back upon Fountain Blue, especially after it had been sold by the guy who was going to call it The Drew. I had heard from people who went there that it was pretty nice. Fountain Blue is an upper-end property that is meant to compete with Resorts World and further down the strip, Aria, Bellagio, Wynn, Venetian, etc. It's supposed to be one of the nice properties in Vegas. It is very close to Resorts World, basically across the street from it. It's also not too far from the Wynn. You can see it pretty noticeably on the Vegas skyline because it is the tallest fully occupied building in Las Vegas, the stratosphere doesn't count because most of that tower is just tower without any ability to go to the tower. It's basically just an elevator shaft until you get to the very top. Fountain Blue is a real, very, very tall hotel. So you can see this very tall hotel with a blue strip on top, and that is Fountain Blue, if you see this in the Vegas skyline. So I hadn't been there yet, and I came for the first time during the New Year's weekend. And it was a nice place. It was actually more memorable than Resorts World. Resorts World is just very generic. You can tell it's new, 
but Resorts World, there's nothing really memorable except kind of like a sphere inside that's similar to the sphere that's outdoors in Vegas. That's really the only memorable feature now in Resorts World, which is now two and a half years old. Fountain Blue has a more memorable look to it. It's got kind of like a retro luxury look to it. It in some ways resembles what you'd picture a luxury casino to look like in the 60s. And it has a big chandelier in the middle of the casino. So yeah, the whole thing looks pretty nice. The parking lot is really confusing. When I first drove into the self-park, I drive in, I go up a little hill, then it says self-park straight ahead. I drive straight ahead, I go down a hill, and then somehow I'm out of the (laughs) self-park. Like, that shouldn't happen. You shouldn't accidentally be able to get out of the self-park. You should know you're going out of the self-park. Like, usually it's the opposite. Usually it's hard to find your way out of a parking lot. Here, I had a hard time staying in the parking lot here. I accidentally forced myself out. I followed the signs and somehow I ended up out. So when I tried again, I had to make kind of like an awkward turn to not be forced out. So that was very strange. So the whole lot is, is very strangely done, the whole structure. Also weird signage. It kept, it kept talking about guest check-in. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to guest check-in. I'm not checking in. Where, where is the elevator? Where's the elevator to the casino? There, there's no sign for elevator. It's just guest check-in. I said, well, does that mean elevator? Well, yes, it meant elevator. That was odd. Once I got into the property, it was pretty normal. So there was nothing really confusing in Fountain Blue. On the first floor is the casino and the front desk and all that. The restaurants and other features are on the second floor. There is a pool on the third floor. If you want to go up and check the rooms or check out the hallways in the hotel or go to the top floor and look at the views because it's a very tall building, you're not going to be able to do that unless you're staying there because they have guards at the hotel elevators that are vigorously checking if you have a key. I had basically access without getting into it. I had access to get into the hotel. And not only into the hotel, I had access to a floor that was under construction. That was the top floor, the 70th floor. Now, it's not actually the top floor of the building. There are some floors that are numbered in the 80s, all the way up to like 88, that are not chronological. It's like They just skip a number of floors, it looks like, after 70 and jump to the 80s. But those floors in the 80s, they require a key to access. And it seems to be all suites up there. I could only see that from the outside. But I wasn't able to go up there. But I was given access to the 70th floor, which is currently not completed. Like, you cannot stay on the 70th floor. The 70th floor is not open to the public just yet. But I was on the 70th floor. And up on the 70th floor, you can see a lot of interesting things. Not only can you see the views of Vegas from the very tall building, and because none of the rooms are closed because they're all under construction, you can actually see from all angles if you're up there. But I also was able to see what an empty room looks like. I was able to see the stuff they're putting in the rooms. It was interesting. I can't get into who gave me access to it or why, but I was given access to it. That's all I can say. So anyway, 
I went to a few rooms. I didn't touch anything. I, I went to these rooms and took a look at the views, took a look at the rooms, and it's pretty cool. The view was very nice. I posted some pictures of this on my Twitter. It's interesting looking at the stratosphere tower, because even though you're not as tall as the stratosphere tower, you're so high up there that the stratosphere tower doesn't look that big anymore, because it's at a distance and you're very tall, so it almost looks like it's on your level. It's not, but it almost does. So it doesn't look like this giant thing sticking up in the sky anymore. Then you look at nearby buildings, like you look at the Encore, which is next to the wind, and it looks short. It looks like it's way down there. In fact, everything else looks like it's way down there. You also have a nice view of the sphere from some of the rooms. Now, you're very high, and the sphere looks very small, but you do have a good view of it from the rooms that face that way. Something that was disappointing about Fountain Blue was to see that the rooms are small. I'm talking about the standard rooms. I expected these rooms to be fairly large, kind of like along the lines of what the Caesar's Palace Augustus Tower gives you. But that's not what I saw. And maybe I'll post a picture of one of them. The standard room, and this is without any furniture in it, so it should look bigger, but instead it looks small. The standard room looked pretty damn small. It looked like once they get a bed in there, and once they have furniture, it's going to look very small. So I was quite surprised. I really expected larger rooms in the Fountain Blue. I don't know why that was the case. And you can't even blame it on the structure being built in 2007, because in 2007, they were building larger rooms, like the Caesars Augustus Tower was built in 05. So that was two years beforehand, and the rooms there were large. So why they chose to have a small, standard room in Fountain Blue, I don't know. And I have to imagine that all the rooms below that are the same way. My opinion here is that Fountain Blue, while the views are very nice from the upper floors, and while the property itself has kind of a cool look to it and kind of retro and looks you know, pretty luxurious, the room size leaves a lot to be desired. So if it's just you and another person, like a wife, a husband, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever it is, it should be fine. But you wouldn't want to bring your family to a standard fountain blue room if they're like what I saw. So that might be a problem because this is not going to be a cheap place. So if you can stay in another hotel and pay less or the same and get a much bigger room, and it has a better location, why would you stay at the Fountain Blue? So I think that's going to be a problem, but we will see. I haven't heard any comments about the Fountain Blue room size. I just noticed it myself in these rooms that didn't even have furniture yet. Apparently, there was already a firing at the Fountain Blue. Apparently, someone who was involved in gaming, I think the director of gaming or assistant director of gaming, someone who was high up in the gaming structure there was fired after just 17 days. It's not known exactly why that person was fired. There was a story going around on Twitter that they had a debacle as far as status matching was concerned, that they were status matching to other major Vegas properties cards and did that for an hour or so before doing away with the whole thing. <laughs> which is weird like what conclusions could they draw within an hour even if there's a big line of people to do it like what conclusions can they draw within an hour 
it's possible that they just didn't realize how easy it is to get second to highest tier cards at other properties these days. A lot of times you can get these by getting a certain credit card or by just spending money on property or by playing on multiplier tier days. So you don't have to be a big gambler to make things like diamond anymore or gold at MGM. And then there's all kinds of status matches you can get from other cards. So I think they may have realized at Fountain Blue that they're making a mistake by giving people upper tier cards just because they can show one from another property. Whatever it was, they did it for about an hour and thought better of it, according to someone on Twitter. I don't know what benefits you would be getting for the upper tiers at Fountain Blue. Typically, these benefits aren't as good as you would believe. Like, I bet a lot of you would think that if you get matched to something equivalent to Caesars Diamond or MGM Gold, that you'll get a lot of free play, a lot of offers in the mail, a lot of comp rooms. It's not how it works. Those are based upon your actual play. The tier card only gives you guaranteed benefits, such as a special line at check-in or the cashier, or no resort fees, or free parking, things like that. Sometimes you'll get something extra like a once-a-year highly discounted cruise, but it's not going to have anything to do with the comps you're going to get. You're not going to get free play or free rooms based upon that. So it really doesn't cost them very much to hand this out, but at the same time, if they hand out too many, then it creates lines that are too big for the upper-tier cards, and then that makes their actual active customers upset. Caesars is just having so many big multiplier days, they're just really asking for it. I mean, there's going to be more and more and more diamonds each year to where it's going to be insane. So diamond is becoming less and less notable or special at Caesars. And maybe that's what Fountain Blue realized. But why wouldn't they realize this before they start the whole thing? Why would you start a status match program and then cancel it after an hour? Who knows? Something else I did that I'd like to recommend to you guys. If you haven't been to Hoover Dam in the past, like, six to seven years, I recommend you go back. Because they've added something that you haven't seen before, if you have not been over there since 2017. They have a very tall bridge that is part of the new I-11 that was built to be a Hoover Dam bypass. Because if you wanted to drive to Arizona from Vegas, including Phoenix, you would have to pass through Hoover Dam. So you used to have to go through all this security to pass through the dam because they didn't want people going over the dam with a bomb and trying to damage the dam. So you'd have to go through security to get over there, and there was a lot of traffic going that direction in both ways, because people were going between Las Vegas and Phoenix. The backups could sometimes be as long as two hours to get through that security point. And I sometimes ran into that when driving to and from Phoenix, especially to Phoenix, because it was earlier in the day. Usually when I'd come from Phoenix, by the time I get to Vegas, it would be late at night, and at least I wouldn't have much traffic there. But to Phoenix was brutal. 
Well, this bypass was actually meant to fix that because the bypass allows you to pass near Hoover Dam and then eventually connect to US-93 without actually being on Hoover Dam. That means no security needed. Now, you can go on Hoover Dam if you go a different direction and then you get on the road you used to take over Hoover Dam. So you can do that, and in fact, I did do that. But what's really interesting, if you go to that bridge, which is the bridge on I-11, now I made the mistake of actually driving on I-11 across into Arizona, and I'm like, okay, how do I get off here? And <laughs> There's no way. In fact, there was no view from the bridge, because they have a tall wall, pr- presumably to prevent you from looking at the dam and being distracted. So I'm like, well, this sucks. I couldn't see anything. So then I turned back around, went back to Nevada, and then got off on the first exit, and I made my way over to a road that actually takes you to a viewpoint for Hoover Dam. And where you're basically dropped is in a parking lot where you can climb up the hill on a staircase or a ramp if you're in a wheelchair, and then walk that I-11 bridge. They have a pedestrian section behind the wall that you can walk, and there you have a great view of Hoover Dam. You're pretty high up. You're like 800-something feet up. But you have a very nice view of the dam. And then afterwards, you can continue driving and get to where the dam itself is. You can drive over the dam, and you'll also see on the way there that bridge that you were just on. And you can take a look at it. It's pretty cool. So that bridge is a nice thing to visit. It's free. You can park for free. You just have to walk up the hill to get to the bridge. But once you're there, then you have very, very nice views. It feels like an aerial view, even though you're not in the air, of Hoover Dam. If you can't find parking there, there is an auxiliary lot just a tiny bit down the road on the other side. So that is my tip as something you may want to do. I've been to Hoover Dam before, but this was interesting. I never had a view from that high up and that clear of a view right head on to Hoover Dam, except for one time a number of years ago when I rented a boat on Lake Mead and went to Hoover Dam on the boat. And then there were all these ominous signs warning you that you might get shot if you continue to go much closer. And then the boat just started drifting. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm rapidly trying to turn the boat around so I don't accidentally drift close to the dam and get shot for being a terrorist. But I made it. Okay, that's it. I am tired. We'll work on the archives later for half the show. I'll fix the radio player. Will ACR and GG Poker do the right thing? Will they be transparent? I don't think so. I doubt it. But maybe they'll pleasantly surprise me. I wish they'd listen to me. Because I would know how to handle these things. I would know what the public wants to hear. Because I've been part of that public for a long time. And every time one of these sites does something tone deaf, I think about what people actually wanted to hear from them. Like what people are really looking for. And I have a good feel for that. Not only because I'm one of those players, but I can then think like others who are in the community and observe what they want. But 
the sights too quickly go into damage control mode and just do more damage. Also, if you have a cryptocurrency wallet, please check, double check, triple check, and quadruple check the address that you're sending it to so you don't accidentally send $21,000 to Munker Guy. That's a lesson that should be learned here. And if you're going to fake a kidnapping, do a good job of it. Don't do an embarrassing, obvious fail job to where it looks pretty clear that you set it up yourself. And if you're going to Vegas for New Year's, you really should get a room that faces the Strip, at least for New Year's Eve, because it's so much nicer to watch it all from the room, to see all the fireworks from the room, rather than battling with wall-to-wall -wall people for position in the cold. So that is all. I'll see you sometime soon. Well, see you on the radio. You know what I mean. Good morning, good night, good evening, and... Shalom.